What do I say? Hello, and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. <laughs> I am not Tyler Smith. No, I am I am David Bax, but Tyler is on assignment. Joining me is as co-host... Scott and I. Scott and I. Uh, thanks for the assist there. Yeah. Uh, really we got there together. As, as co-host. It's amazing um, how little you pay attention to what Tyler says every week on this podcast. Uh, I mean, to the things he says every week. Right. Yeah, I yeah. do. I, you'd think those would be the things that I have memorized, but it's been in some way. No, it's the opposite. The right. stuff that he says the same every week is the stuff that I'm completely oblivious to. Yeah, I'm pulling up my notes or right. whatever. Which but is, you just think after years of doing this, yeah. it would just seep in. Yeah. And no. Yet. Yeah, that's that's just me. Uh, <laughs> I guess um, it's not like riding a bike. Uh, or it's like trying to ride a bike you never learned to ride in the first place, maybe. <laughs> it's just like that. <laughs> so um, here's what we're going to do real quick. We are, because like, uh, like, like I said, Tyler's not here. We have something to get to. Uh, there's a reason uh, that, that Scott and our guests are here. But first, we're going to take care of uh, paying the bills real quick. So I'm going to tell you. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi... Mubi. Mubi's curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy. All for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. So, here's what's currently available on Mubi. Uh, Akira Kurosawa's 1985 film, Ron. That's uh, the correct pronunciation. Yeah, According like Ron two Burgundy. Two people on Twitter have... Uh consensed yeah. us on this yeah you wait you already tweeted yeah, yeah. that in the two seconds since we talked about yeah. it you're better at twitter than i am <laughs> i feel it's like when twitter, was, when twitter was new i felt like i was good at it when it was just about like saying dumb shit but it's now still kind of about that but now there's more of a conversational aspect yeah and i don't care i very rarely reply to people no i'm very into the conversation yeah that's that's what i'm not good at yeah so i'm not good at conversations in life or on twitter but <laughs> okay according to your twitter pals it's pronounced wrong Akira Kurosawa's masterpiece adapts King Lear into a majestic blood-soaked epic with a score by Toru Takemitsu inspired by Mahler. The great Tatsuya Nakadai Nakadai, is devastating and unforgettable as the warlord who goes mad as his family splits and his empire crumbles. Uh, They're also featuring uh, Bertrand Tavernier's L627 and um, a film... Uh, I can't find the name of the director, but Dennis Hopper's first starring role for 1961, Night Tide. Hmm. Uh, these are the things that are currently being featured on Mubi. So, and so, there is a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com, slash Battleship to redeem now. And I want to tell you uh, also about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. These things look great and they sound great. I use them every day. I don't know if Scott has a pair, but um, uh, today I was listening to, uh, uh, let's see, so they announced the, uh, the Austin City Limits Film Festival. Okay. And Austin City Limits made a Spotify playlist of like one song from like every artist who's playing the... Nice. Uh, did I say film festival? Music festival. Austin City Limits Music Festival is what I meant to say. Uh, I got film festivals on the brain. As, right. That's, uh, that's a teaser. Yeah. That's uh, what we call foreshadowing. Yeah. Um, topic that people have no idea is coming. Yeah. Yeah. Because they haven't looked. No clue. <laughs> that's how I look. When I pick a podcast to listen to, I'm like, <laughs> hand over the eyes. I don't want to know anything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, 
Uh, no, the Austin City Limits Music Festival, Austin City Limits put together a, a, a Spotify playlist of uh, every, like every artist that's playing, and it's like, wow, there's a bunch of, wow, like uh, Paul McCartney and Metallica and like cool, like Janelle Monet's on there and, and like some, 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 some other cool stuff. And then it's like, wow, there's also a lot of crap, right? <laughs> like a lot of bands I've never heard of for good reason. Yeah. Uh, on there that all kind of like sound the same, like, like, Oh, this sounds like a, like a, uh, sound alike version of like X popular band right. that was made for a commercial. Um, anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. No matter how bad the music was, it sounded great in my earbuds, my tweaked audio.com earbuds. Uh, they're available at a low, low price over at tweaked audio.com. But if you use the offer code, pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension this episode is brought to you in part by noom forget one size fits all diets with noom you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle no food is off limits enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Let's get into it, shall we? Yeah. Uh, now, normally I would ask you to introduce the guest, but uh, the guest has given me very specific <laughs> instructions. I can read them. How to introduce? Well, no, because then you'd be referring to yourself in the third person because your name's in I've here. I've been known to do that. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Uh, <laughs> Here's our guest. In order of importance, she's a film data coordinator at Variety Insight and the husband of Scott Nye, Julie Sesnovich. Did I write husband? You did write husband. <laughs> and I ain't fucking Ron Burgundy over here. Just read it the way that you wrote it. In fairness, I feel like the word wife has a lot of patriarchal baggage I'm not comfortable with, so maybe it was a Freudian slip, but... I don't know. I like saying my wife. Well, yeah, yeah it's you good like on our saying side. it. It's good on the man's side. I'm saying yeah. I don't... Okay. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. I'm technically the wife, but, you know, you get the idea. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hello. It's been taking me a while to get used to saying my wife, not because I don't enjoy it. I do. But because I'm just so used to after years saying my girlfriend. And so it's I, hard not to say like Bora. So you, no, that's hard to Okay. You didn't uh, you didn't go around saying my fiance all I, the time? Well, okay, I did to people I knew. But if I was like referring to her like I was picking up food for her or something. It's too much narrative get, information. Yeah, I didn't no. want to get this whole backstory with yeah. my person Chipotle or whatever. I yeah. was like, I've got Less than a year. It was uh, 10 months between right. proposal and our wedding. I've got less than a year to refer to someone as my fiance. I'm going to wear this thing out. <laughs> I, I said it the night we got engaged, actually, Natalie and I, we got engaged uh, down in um, Escondido, California at a, at a winery. We were staying in a hotel that night. And um, the hotel was out of, like, they had, they had forgotten, to, no, they, oh, we forgot to bring toothpaste. That's what it was. So I, so, Natalie like called down the front desk and she was like, do you have toothpaste so we can come and like grab or pick up? And they're like, sure. And so I went down and I was like, it was the first time I got to say it. Yeah. She like the whole, the, the desk. I was like, my fiance called down and I got some toothpaste. And he was like, yeah, he, he didn't care. But it was like a big moment for me. Yeah, of course. Uh, that I got to say my fiance. 
All right. Um, so yeah, congratulations on you being each other's husbands. <laughs> um, we're very progressive. <laughs> uh, and Julie, how have you been? I've been good. Um, yeah. You know, married life is good. Uh-huh. Um, By the time this episode goes up. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you started it. Finish what you started. She'll be on national television. We don't have to say program. <laughs> Figure it out yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah. Um, got the DVR set. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll keep being critical about it, but Natalie and I were like, should we invite them over and invite like other people and have a viewing party? I'm not <laughs> watching. <laughs> that, that, that was her. I'm going to watch when I'm 50 years old, when I've gone <laughs> full Norma Desmond, going to become a recluse and just uh-huh. watch it over and over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, obviously what we're alluding to is that, uh, Julia has joined the Trump legal team and yes. <laughs> will be on Fox news tomorrow. They need a woman to represent on TV. It always looks better. I'm really going to fix this thing, guys. <laughs> all right. Going to turn it all around. So like I said before, let's get into it. Um, we teased film festivals. Time to let the cat out of the bag. Okay. What we're here to talk about. Please tell me. Uh, this past week, it's, it's our Cannes Film Festival preview episode. <laughs> yeah. <of course. laughs> yeah. Um, no, this past uh, weekend uh, was the annual ninth annual. Yeah. Uh, yes. Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival. Yes. That is the full name. Yeah, I think they've. And even official releases now, they just say the TCM Classic Film Festival. Yeah. Because I think they right, realized... TCM stands for Turner Classic Right, Movie, but right? when it first started, they did say the Turner Classic Movies Classic oh, Film Festival, okay. which is super annoying. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, yeah the, that is. Because it's, it's like pin number, right? Yeah, totally. yeah. machine. Yeah. Um, uh, this was my third year. This was your guys' what? Eighth. Wow, we've so been, been all since we... All the first years, year. yeah. Because you didn't live here. Because we right. didn't live here. Right. Uh... I did, and I uh, just never went until. Uh, I think, uh, the pro- uh, but the problem was I hadn't, I hadn't thought to apply for media credentials. Yeah, and actually, the first year I moved here, I thought to apply for media credentials through Bachelor Pretension, so it then became my thing. But then when I did the social media program with them, you're like, hey, that looks fun. I think I'll do that. Uh, yeah, 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 that's true. But yeah. also, for those who either don't want to pay for a pass or don't want to apply yeah. for media credentials, you can do what I've been doing for eight years <laughs> and experience the festival entirely through standby. This is a real thing. You have to adjust your expectations. You can't get into theater four except at 9 a.m. I'm just telling you that right now. Oh, you could have um, gotten in to see the, the Adventures <laughs> of Tom Sawyer. Okay. Plenty of seats. There are some oddball ones, but for the most part, you can't get into theater four. If there's like a really popular guest, you probably can't get in. But like pretty much everything else you can get in. Like you have to get in line an hour before. Um, but it's also nice because if you're either a student, senior, an American Cinematheque member, or a member of any guild, the standby tickets are half off. So it's 10 bucks. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so yeah. You don't, um, can you, can you not then go to like the panels and stuff at the Roosevelt? That's the other the thing parties? is you can't do any of that. But if you're just like, Hey, I just want to see these movies. You can do it standby. So that's what I did. Yeah, I haven't been to a panel since the first year I went two years ago anyway. Um, I just... I went to a few a couple of years ago. I was like... <laughs> I, I, I they're, they're fun, but it's like, there's great movies showing right now. I yeah, should be that's usually watching those movies. Yeah. Uh, all right, so what we're going to do is we're going to go day by day um, and talk about what we saw. So the, this thing kicked off on Thursday. Um, so... 
Did you guys see anything on Thursday, the I 26th? Did. Uh, I started I did with uh, Finishing School from 1934. It is the only film directed by uh, Wanda Tuchuk, I think is how you pronounce that last mm. name. Delightful name. Uh, she was a screenwriter in the kind of late, silent, early sound era. And somehow, I don't know how she got to directing this. Apparently, the co-director credit was just the film's editor. <laughs> They're basically <laughs> like, a woman can't be the only credited director on this, so we'll put the editor on the name. But apparently, she did most of the actual direction. Uh, it stars Francis D. and Ginger Rogers. D. plays a girl who just enrolled in a finishing school, which, for those who don't know, old-timey uh, society, it was basically a school that young women went to to finish off their education and learn how to be fine, refined young women so they could go get married properly. Um, Ginger Rogers has been enrolled in the school for a lot longer and she knows the ins and outs and kind of seeks to be a corrupting influence on Francis D. Um, but the film is more complex than I think most pre codes with that kind of setup are. There's a real sympathy for both the young women. They don't like, usually in these types of setups or pre codes, the Ginger Rogers character would like get in a car crash or like mend her ways or something very extreme. But she just keeps going on being Ginger Rogers and Francis D. Uh, gets in more and more trouble, but the film keeps sympathizing with her and understanding why uh, young people, when they're first exposed to the outside world, kind of do some stuff they're maybe not proud of and make some mistakes uh, along the way. Uh, and it's a very emotionally engaging and very funny movie. Ginger Rogers at one point sings some song about hitting her grandmother with a shovel. <laughs> 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 she has the best line I heard of the entire week, and I even wrote it down. Uh, she's talking about kind of this gathering where they're going to bring it some fine young men from, I assume the all boys school neighboring them. Uh, and she kind of refers to them as, uh, I can't remember the fictional character she uses, but basically like, uh, Oh, little Leroy. What's the character's name? Ah, no one's got me here. Anyway. Uh, little Lord Fauntleroy. Yes. Okay. Oh. You got me. You, you get me. That's why we're married. Okay. Um, <laughs> she's like a bunch of little Lord Fauntleroy is coming over. She said, if you pluck the collective hair off their chest, you wouldn't have enough to make a wig for a grape. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah that kind of gets you a hint to the kind of society they're dealing with and what uh, they want to rebel against um, but yeah it's a really really engaging movie I think the Warner Archive put it out on DVD and it might even be on streaming and stuff so people should totally check it out I really loved it uh, well I kicked off uh, Thursday with uh, another first for me which is um, the uh, uh, poolside screenings at the Roosevelt Hotel I'd, I'd never been to one before This they were showing 1954's Them the uh, giant ant movie to end all giant ant movies um, I mean how many are there really there's that <laughs> and like phase four right or are they I little they giant. I don't think they get giant oh, that's but there's true. a lot of there's a whole lot of 50's giant Bulk whatever movies, movies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but not necessarily but specifically just ants yeah I think that then have... kind of courted the market on it um mm-hmm. first I'll talk about the pool set screening because I'm I have mixed feelings about it um I'll start with the cons um not to sound like a Los Angeles like uh you know uh wimp but it's like by the time the movie's over it's like 55 degrees outside yeah. it's not yeah. really outdoor you know and the closer you are to the heaters the worse your vantage point of the screen is ah. so like the only way to get a head-on view of the screen is to sit but even that's not great because it's on the opposite side of the pool like the screen's at one side right. you've got the pool and you've got seats on either side but they're like weird angles so in order to sit straight on which is what i did you're all the way on the other side of the pool and there's no heaters there so like what so, is, what is the screen like how do they uh, have it set up 
um, it's I mean it's like one of the screens you'd see if you go to like uh, uh, you know outdoor screenings like, like a dime dozen things it's kind of it, it's it, it's it's nicer than that okay. um, but that's that style yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so yeah it was it was a little too chilly also drinks at the Roosevelt holy cow they're way too expensive oh, yeah um, yeah forget it uh, it's just like 20 bucks for a margarita um, but pros free food at the poolside right. screenings they have Watch a, out. they have a whole like uh, cheese and charcuterie spread and then they also have guys walking around and gals with uh, past hors d'oeuvres I had I had um, more than a couple uh, cheese stuffed artichoke deep fried cheese stuffed artichokes yeah they get for the cost of that drink <laughs> yeah definitely yeah I had some peanut butter chocolate torts uh, it was good um, the movie was introduced by a conversation between the great Ileana Douglas and Dennis Miller. I didn't realize Douglas was there too. Oh, yeah. That's an odd combination. That, I mean, she's just all over the festival. Like if yeah. you're an Ileana yeah. Douglas fan, get the hints yeah. to TCM vest. Cause she introduces every screening. The, yeah. I think this was the first of, I want to say four, unless there's one I'm forgetting. That, yeah. That so it's not like someone was like, this is a magical pairing, but she's just everywhere. But oh, still, sure. yeah. that is an odd pairing. Yeah. I don't know. The Dennis Miller thing was like, I mean, he didn't, it, I don't know. He made some corny jokes. He, but he clearly knows the movie. And, um, I'm trying to think like the corny joke he made, which is such a dad joke. He was talking about, he just came in from DC. He was like, he was something like, I visited the Air and Space Museum, but don't let the name fool you. They got a bunch of stuff in there. Um, <laughs> I kind of like it. <laughs> I laughed, but it's like, I also feel like you are a, professional comedian with decades <laughs> of experience that's a that's a dad joke yeah um, uh but then um when Ileana Douglas they start they start talking about matinee uh which obviously the movie within a movie in matinee is inspired by them oh yeah uh but she called it ant-man and Dennis, Dennis Miller corrected her that it was mant um so I guess points to Dennis Miller for being familiar with Joe Dante's oeuvre uh but then I don't know. He started getting into the the thing that is not. I know obviously Dennis Miller's politics are not are not mine. But there's a certain there's also a certain age of established, mostly male and mostly white comedians who have this complaint about oh people think too much about what's funny now or right. like you can't mm-hmm. joke with the stuff you used to be able to. And I really hate that. Well, it's not just that I disagree with his politics. I hate it when it's coming from Jerry Seinfeld or you know uh, any of those other uh, guys who have made that that comparison. So he started getting into that, and I was like, what does this have to do with them? Let's just watch the fucking movie. Uh, and then they played the fucking movie. Also, okay. that's the wrong crowd for that. Like people come to see, it's just a bunch of sweet natured dorks who just <laughs> yeah. want to watch old movies, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, I do kind of, I mean, I, I love Ileana Douglas to death, but I, she did kind of walk him down that path, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, then the movie itself, I, I think I was expecting something cornier than it is. It's a lot. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's legitimately good. Yeah. Yeah. They take, they take the giant ant thing seriously and they do the, like the nice, you know, monster movie thing of holding off. I think it's like not till a half hour or so into the movie that you see the first, like you hear them, you hear that we're like squeaking, keening sound. 
Um, and then, yeah, it's not, then you see you see one. And then I do think it kind of runs out of steam a little bit once you leave the desert and come to Los Angeles, because it, there's this whole thing about like the two kids that for some reason these ants who have been killing people left and right, the kids they just like corner in the sewers, and then they okay. like why you know why why are the, the kids are just the only reason the kids survive this attack is to have this thing for the for the the main guy to save. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, which I I found was kind of, uh, uh, just seemed um, too contrived. But it did, ha- I'd like to, I need to go back and watch Los Angeles Plays Itself again to, to revisit the history of movies in which cars drive in the LA River. Oh. Because I know like Grease and like Terminator 2 and a million other other things but this is 1954 this might this might be the earliest one I've seen of cars driving in the LA River was Terminator 2 like that was legal driving I was assuming they were just like what do you mean in a car chase scene yeah but that's what I'm saying like I don't know if any of it's legal driving. Oh, yeah, yeah I think no. you're saying there's a time when it was like legal oh no 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 okay. no I'm saying yeah it wasn't legal in Greece either they're like they're drag racing, racing right. yeah, yeah. Drag, that's, that's it's right. been a lot since in Greece um I'm not a big fan of Greece, to be honest. But it wasn't at the festival this year, so right. yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it's only a matter of time, unless it's already. I feel like it before. has. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard, hard to say. But let me ask you. You know, I was going to save this for later, but since we're talking about them, which is kind of a horror movie, um, I would say if I have any disappointments about TCM Fest, um, it's that because Julie, you were saying because their audience is like older, sweet natured dorks, right? <laughs> I say that with all affection, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but they can only get so risque with their film selection, you know? Right. Now, you saw Sweet Sweet Back this I was year. Which say. Is, that, that, that is, I would like to see more stuff like that. But, like, they have a theme every year. And I, it was just occurring to me, like, will they ever have, like, a horror-themed TCM fest? Like, will we, will, like, will we get to see, like, Mario Bava movies or something, you know, like I don't think so. And I think the reason is that there are so many other festivals that do that. Yeah, I, was I say. mean, you have beyond fest, you have, but do they do? Cl- I mean, I get beyond fest did the Suspiria, like, yeah, yeah, Beyond Fest always has classic stuff. But I guess okay. I'm just I mean, not saying, like old, old, but like from the 70s and 80s for sure. Like the audience for that is so consistently reliable yeah. that you can find. I mean, the Cinematheque has a series called Cinematic Void, where like most yeah, weeks round. they have quite often 35 millimeter, like obscure 70s and 80s horror stuff. Like you can get that all the time. So I think the whole point of the festival was filling a void, like satisfying a market that wasn't mm-hmm. being addressed yeah so yeah i mean my, one of my favorite things about tcm fest is they play like old melodramas and stuff which never screen anywhere i mean that's true. like very rarely ucla they'll screen that kind of stuff but um yeah yeah and then the, the other vo- the other thing about tcm fest um that i'm not sure if we've talked about in past episodes when we've recapped it is how many people travel for it yeah yeah that there are people who not only are they not seeing the melodramas that aren't playing in los angeles they're not seeing these movies at all because they're coming right. from uh, places with fewer with a you know smaller to non-existent repertory scene potentially uh and that's always really really exciting it's always really exciting on twitter to see like the people who have made this their vacation yeah. right. and are like in los angeles like a, a full week almost before the festival even starts and it's like it's a big sort of build up uh i'd say that's exciting. the majority of people honestly i guess yeah, yeah. I, mean, I know a woman who comes from london every year <laughs> Wow. Yeah. yeah. 
um, yeah, the, so that's uh, that's great. So that was a great start Thursday night. Uh, uh, I, I have one more for Thursday. Actually. Oh, you did. I okay. rewatched Stage Door, which uh, Julia assured me we had seen many years. We have a hundred percent seen. Yes, and which I recognized by the time we got a little into the okay. plot. Okay. Um, which was good because I nodded off for about 10 minutes and could piece together what I'd missed. Yeah. Um, it's about Catherine Hepburn, uh, sort of heiress who wants to be an actress. Uh, she goes slumming it in a boarding house filled with uh, 30s era, very sarcastic actresses just looking for a break to go for on a dancing gig or anything to make their rent. Um, and it's a really, it's based on stage play and it has that kind of like, witty rapport between the women uh it's very engaging on that level and very funny uh lucille ball and uh ginger rogers play two of the women in the boarding house you get a sense of the kind of attitude she's running up against uh i, I felt like on rewatching it the plays or the movies maybe a bit classist in that of course Catherine hepburn's the one who ends up being a success of the women but i think in some ways it's mindful of the fact that she got there through a certain amount of privilege that the other women don't have access to and there's kind of an underlying sadness to the fact that most of the women will be stuck in that boarding house or eventually just get married and move on with their lives and never really achieve their dreams um yeah it's a really great movie the print was the first nitrate print i saw at the festival and it was absolutely gorgeous and actually kind of uh clicked in with me finally what is distinct about nitrate which i never quite nailed to put my finger on but it really has a smoothness that most uh plastic prints don't it seems like the people are like kind of carved out of silver or something um yeah, it's. Uh, I'm really glad that they did the nitrate program again this year, which was such a hit last year. Um, okay, so should we move on to Friday? Sure. Yes. Uh, I've only got one at the end of the day, so I'll let you guys I start. started early because I had to go to the DMV in the morning, so I used that as an excuse to take the whole day off and go to TCM Fest. <laughs> no regrets. Yeah. So I started with My Brilliant Career by J- Jillian Armstrong, which I hadn't seen before. Um, and where appropriate, I will mention where there's like Q&As, because I feel like they really have figured out the Q&As at TCM Fest, yeah. because they're a tight 15 minutes. They don't open it to the audience. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and they just get right to the point and they have like yeah. a good anecdotes and it's yeah so they're usually pretty good so i'd never seen the movie before i feel like i kind of appreciate the fact of the movie more than the actual movie um it's you know it's about a woman in the 1890s who's asserting her independence it's based on a real woman who wrote um, a book about her life and it's kind of billed as being about a woman who's trying to become a writer but that's not actually what the movie is the movie is just kind of she's living her life trying to be independent falling in love and then at the very end of the movie she just writes down her experiences in a book and then at, there's a title card being like this book was published like that's <laughs> it so that's not quite what it is and I mean like that's fine that was her life I was just kind of what expecting something <laughs> but it's so it's it like is the, uh... The Roseanne series finale before they brought it back, right? Where, I, I don't know. Oh, uh, where it turned out like the, the last two seasons had all been like short stories oh, she'd written, right. like stories she'd written. Yeah, I mean, it was her real life, and it is like interesting because it is about you know debates that are still raging today about you know the role of women in society and how she falls in love with a very young and foxy Sam Neill. Hello, and um, how you know he wants to get married and she doesn't, and how that had to be a choice back then. Um, it's also, you know, there's kind of the meta layer of Gillian Armstrong was the first woman to direct a feature in Australia in 50 years mm. because there had been actually a trio of sisters making their own movies in Australia in the thirties, which are sadly all lost. Um, but she was talking about how 
that kind of was a lot of pressure, which she was trying not to let get to her. But also at the time, the film industry in Australia had kind of lapsed completely. So they had just started a film school. And she was in the inaugural class, which also had Philip Noyce and Chris Noonan, who directed Babe. Um, so she said, she's like, you know, people look at it. If Philip Noyce fails, that means Philip Noyce fails. If I fail, that means women can't right. make movies in Australia ever again. Um, she was also resistant to making a film set in the outback, which this movie is, because she's from the city. And she's like, I'm tired of everyone thinking Australia is just the outback. Um, Ileana Douglas, by the way, was the moderator for this, naturally. Um, Judy Davis is the star of it. She's incredible. It was her debut role. They plucked her out of nowhere. Um, there had been another actress attached to the role for six months. They saw Judy and said, sorry. Oh, and they wow. sent the other oh, girl wow. packing. Like, the other girl, she'd been doing makeup tests. She'd been learning to ride a horse. And they wow. saw Judy Davis. And, man, that was the right call. Because <laughs> yeah. she's, like, she's so young. But she's, like, she's completely commands, you know, attention. And she's really good. Um, I want that story to be like, and that other woman is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. Um, also, the movie was beautiful. It was a brand new restoration, and like they really, you know, milked the scenery and the costumes. And I think it maybe it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Costume Design. Um, also, apparently, Judy Davis went to drama school with Mel Gibson, and they did a production of Romeo and Juliet. That's a fun fact. That's cute. Um, yeah, but it, overall, again, I like. I'm glad that movie exists. It just, I think, it fell a little short in just. There was maybe just something missing, but. Well, it sounds like Julian Armstrong did a good enough job that women keep getting to make. Kept getting to make yeah. movies because we got the dressmaker. Yeah. A couple obviously. years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Also starring Judy Davis. Yeah. And that's obviously the culmination of the history <laughs> of female filmmakers. Now in it's over. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're not going to talk the dressmaker. Um, um, yeah. That af- oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I, again, had another afternoon film, which was A Hat Full of Rain, um, directed by Fred Zinneman and starring um, Eva Marie Saint, Don Murray, Lloyd Nolan, and Anthony Franciosa. Um, if you're into New York Actors Studio in the 50s, this will be aggressively your shit. It was aggressively my shit. Um, if not, your mileage may vary. I thought it was really good. It's kind of in that same vein of like on the waterfront where kind of that new style of acting is coming into play. It's based on a play. It feels like one, but it's a very good play. Um, it's about morphine addiction and it it treats that very seriously, but not in a sensationalized way. It was kind of confronting the reality that a lot of men came back from the wars. They had injuries. They were given morphine. Really not so different to what's happening now. Um, and it also kind of explores how that can affect a whole family because the main characters are the addict, then his wife, his brother, and his father. And it really explores, even though his wife and father don't know he's addicted to morphine till near the end, just the effect that that secrecy is having on their lives and kind of how they all relate. Um, it's also very frank about their relationships. Like at one point, Eva Marie Saint says, like, all our friends are divorced, which is not something you expect to hear in a movie from the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably the best work I've ever seen from Eva Marie Saint. She's really good. Um, it's shot in CinemaScope, which is kind of unexpected for a chamber piece as it is. Um, and it's shot on location in New York. The score is by Bernard Herrmann. Um, Eva Marie Saint was there. She's great. She's like 95, something like wow. that. Um, she's she's really funny like I'm kind of sad she didn't do more comedy because she's very funny she was completely tearing into Ben Mankiewicz she was not letting him off the hook at all which (laughs) fine Um, but yeah it's really good I highly recommend it 
even if New York Actors Studio in the 50s is <laughs> kind of maybe not your thing, I think it can kind of win over other people. Um, so, yeah. Uh, my up. afternoon movie was uh, The Setup, which Julie and I watched many years ago. Uh, directed by Robert Wise. It's a boxing noir. It's one of my very favorite uh, noir films, so I was really thrilled to see it again. The print they showed was so pretty. It was well worth seeing. But I do recommend people check it out on DVD. Uh, Robert Ryan plays an aging boxer who's kind of on his way out of the game. Uh, by the way, if you ever see any movie from the late 40s to late 50s that stars Robert Ryan, it's almost a guarantee it'll be good. There's very yeah. few actors who have that kind of uh, surefire guarantee uh, for that long. Um, but yeah, he, he plays a boxer. His manager makes a deal for him to take a fall without telling him, figuring he'll lose anyway because he's been on such a losing streak. Uh, but Robert Ryan's not ready to go down yet. Uh, Audrey Totter plays uh, his wife. I'm pretty yeah, They're married. Uh, she plays his wife. And ever since Heidi Gardner started doing this, like, boxer's girlfriend. Oh, yeah, on, on SNL. Up, yeah, <laughs> on Weekend Update. <laughs> It's. It was very hard to get that out of my head because Audrey Totter is completely playing that role. I mean, they don't have kids she can take to her sisters, but it's like everything else. She's still quite good in the movie, but, you know, life does go on. Sometimes things take on associations you can't imagine. Uh, but the movie is told in real time, which it's very explicit about. Like the first shot is of a clock on the street that then the last shot pans out to reveal it's only been 73 minutes, um, which sets up a... Uh, circumstance in which you're going to have to eventually watch Robert Ryan go through a full boxing match, which sounds boring and sounds like it would take up way too much of a 73 minute film, but it's a super exciting boxing sequence. Uh, Art Kahn, who wrote the screenplay was a boxing journalist or just sports journalist in general in the Oakland area. And he seemed to pack the movie with like every interesting character he saw over how many, however many years he went to boxing matches. There's like, a guy listening to a baseball game, a blind man who hires somebody and tells him what happens. <laughs> Just the bloodlust of the crowd, even from the women, uh, is very like lived in and real. And the boxers all have their own personalities and backgrounds. And some are super religious and some are completely atheist. And they just get into fun conversation uh, rapport. Uh, I was about to say backstage, but there's a sportier word for <laughs> in the locker room. The locker there room. it is. Yeah, I know sports. <laughs> uh, it was actually, I'd forgotten about this. It was part of this like poet's corner thing. Cause the theme, I don't think we've said this year is, was like writing in the movie, which oh, is, yeah, well, it was like to page that. to screen. Yeah. Which is a slightly more specific uh, theme than they usually have, which is like laughter or something. Yeah. Uh, but so this was actually based on an epic poem, which I completely forgot about. Uh, the poem was based, well, not based, was about a black fighter. And of course, this is being produced by Howard Hughes in the 50s. He was like, we're not making a movie starring a black person. Uh, so they made it Robert Ryan, which, you know, as uh, concessions go, you still get Robert Ryan in a great leading role. Um, but they actually had a guy there to read part of the poem. And it was really super cool way to kind of mm. introduce the screening, kind of got you in a certain rhythm that I think Robert Wise uh, falls into very well of like, Robert Rice is a very exacting director, and he, ha he does have a very rhythmic, very aggressive style that the, was reflected in the poem as well. This is a good kind of marriage of guy material, but... Who, yeah. who was it who read the poem? Uh, Just like, Joseph Moncur March. But, like, who is that? A poet. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> he wrote other epic poems, I guess. Oh. Uh, yeah. Um... So yeah, it's, of course, uh, Robert Ryan not being willing to take the fall has some fallout and it just keeps ratcheting up the tension more and more. And it's a super exciting and very tight 73 minute movie that I highly re recommend. Are we into the evening now? Yes. Yeah. Sure. Friday? Yes. Um, cause I only saw, I, I, um, 
I, I came from work. I was thinking about trying to rush to the creature of the black lagoon, but it probably wasn't going to make it. And I was like, you know what? I'll, lo- I'll use this opportunity to do my, my tradition whenever there's a festival at Hollywood and Highland, which is go have a meal at the Cabo Wabo Cantina. Right. Naturally. But they no longer have free Wi-Fi, which was half yeah. the reason I liked going there. So I only made one trip to the Cabo Wabo Cantina this year. That'll show them. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I like that bearded man. What's his Um But then uh, I saw Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter with, with Scott. With me, yeah. Um, which I'd never seen before. I, everything here I'd never seen before. Um there are some people who go to see Sam Fest and only see movies they've only seen before, and that boggles my mind. We did that the first year when we were both just doing standby. No, we what? Yeah, we saw some movies. Oh, I'm we know. saying we did see Spartacus, which we hadn't seen before. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Well, because um, <laughs> uh, we're already at like 9:30 p.m. Are you guys? Do you guys have anything else? Well, I I went to Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, you did. Let's talk about I that. I did. I didn't know if you wanted to be like super strict about going. Oh, exact yeah, order. around, taking turns. Yeah, yeah. I guess, but I, I guess in this case, I figured this is like behind the scenes stuff because Scott and I both had the, the same like final movie, right? Yeah. We I figured we'd end with that. Okay. Because we saw it okay. together. Well, I saw Creature from Black Lagoon. <laughs> in 3D. In 3D. I barely got in. I was in the standby line, and I was the second to last person allowed into the theater. So the seat was not great for 3D. I'll tell uh, you that much, because it was all the way to the side and in the front. Um, the people next to me were eating big bowls of noodles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you can't have everything. I completely missed the introduction by Dennis Miller again. Um, oh, and... A couple of minutes at the beginning of the movie, but it was fine. That being said, the movie's like really good. Have you seen it before? No, I've never seen it. It's like not what I expected because there's this expectation that movies of that type are just going to be silly, but they take themselves seriously. And sometimes that makes them sillier, but sometimes it doesn't. It's also like half of it's underwater. Like, I was astounded by that. Like, I've never seen a live-action movie that's that much underwater. And, like, this is 1953, 53, 54. And I was like, how are they doing this other than to put people in grave danger? And that's how. Because, like, they have a guy in this, like, latex thing. He can't have an oxygen tank. And there are these long shots of him, like, you know, stalking people underwater. And it's, like, really incredible. And then to see that in 3D also, and you, like, see a fish kind of swim by right near you, and it's kind of like, whoa. Which, sidebar, I'm not that into 3D, but if you're going to do it, make things be coming off the screen all the time. Like, I am not here for this (laughs) subtle, like, depths of field thing. I am here for the fish swimming into your face. Um... But yeah, like so the effects so are really you get like the when you watch a movie on like up back on DVD when it didn't have 3D at home, it was always funny to watch like Kiss Me Kate and it's like tossing yeah. stuff at like, <laughs> the camera. Well, yeah. Um it, but yeah, it was like I was amazed at how like incredible this movie looked. I was shot on location in Florida, which they make look a lot more exotic than it was. It's subbing for the Amazon. Even the creature design is like really good. Like it's a little sillier when he's like standing in broad daylight, but like when he's like underwater, it's like really incredible. And it like moves, they like breathe. And it was apparently designed by a woman at Disney named Millicent Patrick, who only recently got credit. She was uncredited for that for like 50 years, the patriarchy. Um, But it was also interesting to see it 
after having seen Shape of Water recently mm-hmm. and hear Guillermo del Toro talk about how much of an inspiration this was. Because um, the inspiration for The Shape of Water is that he saw Creature from the Black Lagoon and wanted the woman, who's a scientist, by the way, in the movie, which is cool, um, and the monster to end up together. So I was kind of watching it, wondering if there was kind of any groundwork laid for that. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say there is exactly because she does scream every time she sees him but she does have sympathy for him too so I would say it's kind of similar to maybe what there is in King Kong um so I guess I can see where he'd want them to be together um it's also super really like pro-science which is cool like they're just all these speeches about how great science is because there's no real like mad scientist like they just discover this creature and they keep having you know these monologues about how great it is to discover things in the name of science so right on um the ship captain is played by Antonio Moreno who is the love interest in the silent Clarabeau vehicle it <laughs> so that was interesting to see him 30 years on And then on the way out, um, in the bin where you're supposed to return your 3D glasses, I threw in my sunglasses, and I have yet to buy replacements, so thanks a lot, Creature from the Black Lagoon. (laughs) Wait, do you still have the 3D glasses then? Um, Until this afternoon. Until this afternoon, where I'm like, this is bullshit, and I threw them away, but... Yeah. Oh, that's... Oh, man. It's not like they were terribly extensive sunglasses. Oh, no, right? they weren't. It's, it's just a bother. Yeah. Because I, I only realized the next day when I pulled 3D glasses <laughs> out of my bag, and I'm like, the only way this could have happened is, yep, that's what happened. Oh, that's a bummer. My Yeah, yeah that would... That would kill me because my sunglasses are right. prescription. Uh, I, I have another movie before I saw okay. Rock Hunter. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna do this. Okay. Your movie, then then Rock Hunter, and then going starting with Saturday, we're just gonna do one movie apiece and go around the horn. Right. That makes more sense okay. to me. But you okay. were very insistent on this chronological yeah, thing. All of a sudden. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. I, sh- I shouldn't have been. <laughs> I saw for the first time Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Uh, which, badass. Right, yes. Yeah. Uh, and there's a look, it's like a badass song. Oh, there's two okay. A's in, oh, in the first okay. uh, A of badass. Okay. Uh, directed by Melvin Van Peebles, who was there in person to field questions as best he could. You know, he's getting up there in age. He's not all there. His son Mario was there, as uh, Mario stated, an interpreter kind of to <laughs> relay <laughs> the questions that were being asked and the answers he was given, being given. Uh, in some coherent form for both uh, receivers. Uh, and it was a really fun Q&A. Um, they got into, you know, kind of the production story behind it and uh, how Van Peebles got around uh, not paying his actors everything that they probably had coming to them by <laughs> stating in the production that it was a porn movie, <laughs> um, which is not <laughs> untrue, but isn't really true either. Um it's yeah. kind of loosely about uh, it's always described as being about a pimp, but he's not really a pimp. He's like a performer in a sex show inside of a brothel um, who goes on the run after beating a couple of police officers. Uh, and it's really wild and genuinely experimental. I kind of yeah. got like a Hollis Frampton vibe off it. Uh, and it really to really try anything it has a real rhythm in life. I thought it would kind of be like after watching the setup, I wasn't sure I was in the mood for like another man on the run thriller. But it's like really wacky and fun and really colorful. Um, there's a part where he's on the run. And it's like blasting cool 70s music and intercut with these guys on the street being like, no, man, I haven't seen Sweet Sweet Back. I don't know where he is. And then goes back to him running the 70s music and then cuts to this old man going, huh? What? <laughs> oh, thanks. And then like back to the 70s music. <laughs> Sweet Sweet Back's on the run. Uh, it's been kind of assailed in recent years uh, because it 
opens with the uh, very uncomfortable image of a young boy, probably 10 or 11, having sex with a grown woman. Oh. Um, which is very uncomfortable to watch. Uh, but I don't think the film is completely dishonest about the fact that that happens in a lot of brothels, and especially in those times, happened probably more frequently. Um, or the effect that would have. I mean, Melvin Van Peebles plays the role kind of very distanced, but not like in a super cool kind of way. He just seems like emotionally dis- detached from the world around him and more especially the many times he has sex throughout the movie. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, a pretty nuanced film that I was really surprised by on, on a number of levels. And I'm really glad that, as David said, TCM kind of went off their usual beat by showing mm-hmm. it, especially in the Egyptian where it's almost guaranteed to not fill the house and it didn't. Um, but it was a good venue to play it in for sure. Um, and it was on 35 millimeter yeah. then? Everything That's in the Egyptian cool. this year was 35 millimeter, which I was very, very pleased cool. by. I, yeah, you and some of our listeners would be happy to know, I saw 11 movies this year, nice. six of them on film. Look so at that. more than half You're on there. film. <laughs> That's just the way the stuff I wanted to see worked out. But, um, yeah, I like Sweet Sweet Back. I remember I, watched, I was telling you I watched the DVD back when the movie Badass came yeah. out, which Mario Van Peebles directed about the making of. And uh, um, Badass just seems so conventional. Like, what you watch? Yeah, I can't Back, imagine the making of really it. Really capturing the spirit of it. Yeah. Um, okay, so speaking of seeing things digitally, you and I saw Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. Yeah. Directed by Frank Tashlin. Uh, and it was a DCP, which the. The person introducing the movie specifically said, like, thanks to Fox for this beautiful yeah. DCP. Uh, and it was the worst DCP that I saw of the five. Definitely. I, I don't know yeah. what I see. You know, as a part of my job, I watch and approve not a lot, but, I, you know, it's a part of my job to watch and approve DCPs. And I don't understand what happened here. <laughs> and maybe it was something with the projection. It just looked I don't fuzzy because I've seen plenty of movies old and new in that theater. And I don't think it's a projector. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know why it looked like that. It, it, I don't know if it seems like if you're going to, you know, tout a beautiful DCP, you should, this should be something that has gone back to the negative, you know, or, yeah. or, or, or an IP or something. Uh, it, but it looks like it, it looked like it wasn't even made from an archival source. Like it was just made from, a, like yeah. it was from a print. Do you know what I mean? Like it, yeah, looked, totally. it had those yeah. kind of uh, fluctuations of yeah. skin tones and, uh, general quality of the shots, yeah. Yeah, which was a bummer because the movie's great. I'd yeah. never seen it before. Yeah. It's so great. Unbelievably good. I was really I was really glad. I was really torn between seeing that and something Leave her to heaven? Leave her to heaven, those playing at the same time. And I'm really glad. I mean, I, Leave her to heaven's a fine movie, but Will Successful Rock Hunter is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I also love it. I watched it for a class in... Oh, wait a minute. No, that we watched The Girl Can't Help It. Sorry. I just watched <laughs> it for fun, and it's great. I concur. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's super funny, um, and it, it has that uh, sort of you know Frank Tashlin Looney Tunes type of like spontaneity yeah. to it, where you know it's it has a story, but also occasionally just has like funny like satirical ads. Yeah, you know, or uh, the whole movie just opens with those. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I did, before I think before that it opens with oh yeah um, Tony uh, Randall Tony Randall like playing the 20th Century yeah. Fox fanfare. Yeah. <laughs> Um, is that the one where they like push it out to cinemascope or is that no, the girl can't help it? Okay. There is a part in we'll say successful rock hunter where they take like a fake commercial break and oh, yeah. like, yeah. frame kind of zoom in to the TV format and have it like kind of skip and fluctuate quality right? to make the viewers at home who are more comfortable with TV. Right. Yeah. Feel yeah. better. Also it has Joan Blondell shout out. Yeah. She's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, Jane Mansfield's awesome in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was in the stage play, I think. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Right. But that role in the it stage play was, was way right. smaller. This is like, 
um, apparently the the film bears very little resemblance yeah, to the play that right. it's based on, uh, which I guess is a fun way of playing into the TCM uh, to the theme this year. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay, should we move on to Saturday? Sure. Yes, the All first right. two movies Scott and I saw were together, so I don't know how you want to do that. <laughs> you guys figure that out. All right. I'll, well, we can just go together. Okay. So the first movie we saw was Outrage, which is directed by Ida Lupino, arguably kind of the only woman who worked as a director in the studio system. Um, somehow I managed to see two female-directed well, movies. Before her. True. And actually, most of Lupino's movies were independent to start with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the studio era then. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I saw two female-directed movies at TCM Fest, which is pretty cool. Woo! Woo. So... Um, it's actually, it's about a woman who was raped, which even for the time, they even weren't allowed to say the word rape. They had to say criminal assaults or violent assault, something criminal like assault, that. Yeah. Um, and Lupina is a good director. Probably her most famous movie is The Hitchhiker, which is kind of a noir about, you know, hitchhiking. Um, the first half, I think, is really good. It's very sensitive and psychological and exploring the aftermath of what happens because it happens that the incident happens at the very beginning and then the rest is about kind of the aftermath of what happens to that woman. And it's not only about that because there's like, she's not able to identify who assaulted her in the moment, but right. the audience can identify him and we get the sense even before that happens that something's going to happen within them because he's like really aggressively coming on to her and like, uh, putting out all these kind of like cat calls and just like, mm-hmm. there's, there's Ida Lupino creates a really paranoid reality around right. this, like, this woman going about her everyday life. Yeah. So that's the first half. And then she flees to California to kind of start over and just find herself. And then this is where it starts to lose me because then later toward the end, she's about to be assaulted by another man, but she acts in self-defense and hits him on the head with a wrench or something. For whatever reason, the movie doesn't seem to acknowledge like that he was going to rape her, which is very weird. Like he was absolutely going to, there's really no doubt, but then everyone's just like, Oh no, it's fine. And then a guy she knows in the town is like, Oh, so-and-so would never do that. I know him. And like, they could have turned that into a commentary on how this type of behavior flourishes because men downplay it and protect each other. They don't. Now look, I know that not all movies from the fifties are super woke, but again, the first half is so it's it was just a really weird reversal um to have it suddenly like not treat that assault like the first one yeah i mean even Um, if he wasn't gonna rape her he was like she kept screaming no he he was definitely like yeah on top of her and she was screaming no so it's very much a, a sexual assault and the movie is just like, then she's in legal trouble. Yeah. But like, no one even mentions self-defense. It just is really weird and kind of a bummer. But I think otherwise, you know, Ida Lupin is a good director and it was, you know, an important topic to explore, especially at the time. Do you have yeah. other thoughts? No, I mean, I, I think Lupina's work tends to be very insistent on its social, social messaging in that kind of 50s way where it'll start out, like you said, very well and then gradually explain what's been going on this whole time. Uh, which I find a little tiresome, but it's not my favorite of her movies, but it's kind of on the higher end of things, I'd say. Yeah. All right. Normally I was throw to you next, but you guys saw it together, so I'm going to go next, because right. yeah, otherwise sure. I'll end up with like a surplus of three movies in a row at the okay. end of the day. All right. So, all right. <clears throat> so I um, started off Saturday with another DCP, um, a much better one at the... Uh, wait, this was at the Egyptian. Um 
What movie did you see? Uh, but didn't you say it was all filmed with the Egyptian this year? I, you know, but no, the Oscar incident was was digital. Oh, really? I thought it was in the program. I think it was, said it was thirty five millimeter. You know, I could have sworn I double checked this, but now I'm uh, um, now I'm doubting myself. I'm going to check on the app here. Okay, because uh, I was looking at. We skipped uh, that early morning, you know, right? Where it was at like eleven thirty or something. We skipped the nine to nine thirty slot, and Oxbow Institute was one of the ones I was considering because they were showing on a film. Let's see. Let's uh, see. But if I was wrong, wrong, or they they swapped it out, maybe they swapped it out the last second. That's happened before too. Yeah, it does say digital here. Oh, hmm. well, um, all right then. But this one looked great, and I wonder if part of the, you know that actually brings something up when you look up the descriptions. The there's, they'll mention 35 millimeter. They'll mention nitrate, but when it yeah. comes to, to DCPs, they just say digital. They don't differentiate between 2K and 4K. Yeah, mm. and so I'm wondering if sometimes this, we'll say if it's a restoration, which helps. Okay, yeah. but yeah, because I'm because the I'm wondering if the two best DCPs I saw in terms of the way things looked, which were Octopus Incident and Heaven Can Wait, which we'll get to. Um, I'm wondering if maybe they were 4K. Yeah, they maybe. were in the bigger house as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, that's why it looks good. But yeah, okay, so. Um, the actual incident is so terrific. Such a weird... I mean, luckily it's only 75 minutes because it's a weird way to kick <laughs> off at, to, like at 9 a.m. on a Saturday to do watching something that is this fucking bleak. Oh, it's very bleak. Um, yeah, and, uh, and... And... and it's uh, for those who don't know, it's about uh, lynching, um, not a racially motivated uh, lynching, but it's about... Uh, uh, a local farmer in this uh, outside of this town gets killed. And so everyone, um, in the town or a bunch of the men in the town and one, uh, very gregarious woman, uh, team up to, they form a lynching party and they like, let's go find these guys who killed, uh, killed the guy and stole his cattle. And then they find three men who they decide did it. Um, and then the movie is, about them, you know, I guess it's about whether or not they lynch them. I guess I'll, uh, I'll leave the, I'll leave it as a spoiler at, uh, as far as how far, how far it goes. Um, but, uh, this is another novel, um, uh, apparently, I guess, uh, that uh, had sold quite well. Um, but was apparently very difficult to get made because, <laughs> like we both said, <laughs> it's a real fucking downer. This, Cause it's just like everyone in the movies is just all these awful, these people just being the most base version of, of, of human, just being, being willing to, uh, and even taking pleasure in, uh, you know, killing someone as a, for a punishment for something that, uh, they don't know that they did it. And then there's a question of, uh, you know, anyway, I, I, I don't want to get too far, uh, into that, but it's a terrific lead performance, um, from Henry Fonda, um, and I didn't know this going in that, uh, his buddy is played by Harry Morgan. Um, and I'm a big Harry Morgan fan having grown up watching mash. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're great together. Um, I'll mention one thing that kind of comes up, I think a lot on TCM fest. And I kind of tweeted about this, like a lot of these movies have a lot of like just casual racism in them, right? Yeah. You know, and this one, uh, on the one hand, it's like the one, character in the movie of color who's like the local preacher who comes along with them is one of the good guys right you know but then there's the part where dana andrews plays the sort of lead of the the leader of the three men who are being accused and he accuses the mob of like not being quote-unquote white men because they're because of the way they're behaving not behaving like white people and that's just 
that's not a plot point or anything. That's right. just something yeah. he tosses off. And uh, how do you guys deal with that when you watch uh, old movies? You cringe and contextualize, <laughs> I guess, because another movie we're going to talk about um, that we all saw together um, had that. And it's just like, there's not a lot you can do. I mean, you can acknowledge it. It's kind of like the um, the box, the Looney Tunes box sets that yeah, they right. put out. They have an introduction that says like, these were the views of the time. We don't endorse them. They're bad, but we don't want to edit them because this is how they were presented. And I guess that's kind of the best you can do, I think. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's also one of those things where people will gladly go along with other more aggressive sins and still sympathize with characters. Like they'll watch movies about somebody who murders somebody and can still find sympathy there. And I understand it's different when it's, yeah, but uh, I've wanted to murder people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't harbor, you know, uh, so that's relatable. Bias, but I'm, I can okay. relate to someone wanting to murder someone. <laughs> Well, substitute something <laughs> you don't want to do then. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's degrees of sympathy that I think people are willing to put up with in different regards. And I, I know it's different when it's like a pervasive cultural attitude versus a specific action. Um, but I mean, I guess another would, example would be. Um, no, that's not a good example. Oh, no, this is a good example. Uh, I feel like it's not that hard in movies to sympathize with somebody who, like, hits their kids occasionally. Now, if I had kids, I wouldn't hit them, and I don't condone the hitting of kids, but it's a familiar no. cultural... But you know what I'm going to say to that. <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Um, okay, so that's the Oxbow incident. Uh, it was really good. Um, I saw six movies on Saturday. The first four were really good. Uh, oh, you did the full six movie day. Yes. Watch yeah, out. I think that was a TCM record for me. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to Julie then. Well, another one we saw another together. One we saw together right. If you want to take yeah. the lead on this one. Uh, this is my favorite film we saw at the festival, or at least I saw uh, Wife vs. Secretary, directed by Clarence Brown. Uh, starring Clark Gable, Myrna Loy, and Gene Harlow. Sorry. And Jimmy Stewart. Hey. And Jimmy Stewart. So we're already off to a very good uh, head start in terms of the movie's quality. Uh, Clark Gable plays a magazine publisher uh, who is... I thought he was an advertising guy. That's what I thought, too. But then all the... He's like both? I don't know. said magazine publisher, and that seemed much more in line with what was going on in the movie. Okay, fair so enough. So I'm going with magazine publisher. Okay. Uh, he's on kind of a... Hunt and has a good chance at buying out one of his competitors, but he can't really talk about it to anybody, least of all his wife, played by Myrna Loy. He can and has to talk about it, though, with his secretary, played by Jean Harlow. Uh, and the fact that he shares a secret with her greatly raises uh, Myrna Loy's uh, slightly already uh, heightened jealousy over their relationship and suspicion that uh, Clark Gable is sleeping with her. After all, she does look like Jean Harlow. Um, but the title suggests that it's going to be this kind of like catfighty thing, which it really isn't. Uh, and it's really much more about just how much Clark Gable and Gene Harlow really love their jobs and really love working together. And it really gets at a very specific kind of relationship that I don't see on screen a lot of two people who have every reason to be sexually attracted to each other, but whose main attraction is through their work together. Um, and it toes the line really well between illustrating the confusion that can result from that, how you can suspect that the compatibility you have at work could translate to compatibility in bed 
And it's not that there isn't a sexual tension to those kind of relationships, but it also isn't like the main focus for those people. But the main thing is that the love they have for the work and working together gets in the way of the rest of their lives. In Clark Gable's case, he's kind of unaware of any reason why Merlin Loy would have to be jealous of him or suspicious of his activities because, you know, he's so caught up in his work and so genuinely innocent that he doesn't really think that she could have those suspicions, but she has every reason to be. He just doesn't consider that, which is another kind of, I mean, it's not the same level of betrayal, but it's another kind of like rupture that can create in a relationship that is still ultimately in some way his fault. And on Jean Harlow's part, uh, she has a great suitor in James Stewart, uh, even though he kind of wants her to give up work. And in many ways, the title is about her dilemma as well. Uh, her choice between being his wife or continuing to be a secretary. And she, as she really loves her work and doesn't want to give that up. And she kind of like suggests that they can get married and pool their incomes and they could go to Europe together and has this very modern approach to their eventual marriage. Um, it is still a dilemma that she's facing. And I kind of wonder if the film was based on a short story written by a woman and two of the three screenwriters were women. I think they really had a sense of kind of the draw that, uh, an appeal of work in a professional environment for women at the time, which, which wasn't often kind of explored on screen. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was a really incredible movie. I think you agree. Yes, I liked it a lot. I also want to chime in. So Dana Delaney um, introduced yes. it as oh, cool. a classic film fan. Um, and she set it up right away. She said, like, the title suggests a very specific type of scenario, like you said, but it's more complicated than that because, like you said, on the one hand, Jean Harlow is just, like, really good at her job. She actually apparently, like really lobbied for the role with MGM and tried to kind of downplay her sexuality and just be someone who was just excited to be there and good at her job. But then also Myrna Loy and Clark Gable are like so in love, yeah. so sexually attracted to each other. It's like constant innuendo. So kind of the idea of what this conflict would be that the title sets up is really not what it is. Like they're so in love. And I think she said in the intro that Myrna Loy said it was the sexiest role she'd ever played. And they are like pawing at each other like crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Um, and then also, like, Myrna Loy and Jean Harlow were apparently really good friends in real life, and there's kind of a kinship of their characters throughout the movie. Um, but yeah, it, it is really good, kind of very sexy, very modern. And also, shout out to Jimmy Stewart, because he, it's a smaller role. I've seen a few movies with him kind of in the late 30s, the beginning of his career, where he's just kind of, you know there's not much there but I feel like this is one of the first roles where you really are like oh he's gonna be a star yeah, and you get a sense of the kind of star he'd be yeah because he has a scene where all he's talking about he's just telling Gene Harlow how he got a raise yeah. and I was like so good about to cry it was just like he's just sitting there like explaining how he went into his boss's office and asked for a raise and it's like the most stunning thing i've ever seen and you're just like wow th this kid's going places <laughs> but it, it's funny to see those moments for people we know became huge stars right. and be like yeah that's that's fun. i didn't yeah. mention this when i was talking about them but there uh fest parker has one scene in them and apparently uh he and he definitely steals the show he's like a air force pilot who has seen because there's flying ants Right. right. Mm -hmm. And so they go mm -hmm. when they're, like, they're trying to find out where the ants that, like the queen has landed in Los Angeles. They this Air Force pilot who's been like psychiatrically like hospitalized because he's talking about seeing flying ants. Right. <laughs> uh, and he was so good. And apparently that's uh, 
uh, how he ended up being Davy Crockett is that mm-hmm. uh, Walt Disney saw him in them. Yeah, full disclosure, I don't know that this actually like changed the trajectory of his career. I'm just <laughs> saying, for me, it's the first early role that I've seen him in that I'm like, there it is. Yeah. There's and the magic. And he really kind of rise fully for him. It's like that scene that I didn't even think about, but yeah, it kind of reminds me of a lot of stuff in It's One Over Life. Yeah. That very kind of similar character. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess it's back to me. Now this will throw a wrench in the plans too, because this is a movie <laughs> that Scott also saw, but not at this yeah. screen. So this is um, uh, 1940s. Um, this thing called Love. I've forgotten the director. Alexander Hall uh, is the director. Um, I think I liked it more than you, Scott. Yeah. I, um, even though I think I. Okay, so you're complete. So uh, I'll tell what the premise of the movie is because it's the stupidest part. <laughs> It really is. I kind of think it's the best part. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense, start actually, reactions. to me. But maybe I'm, I'm, I'm having a tough time okay. getting into 1940. So, um, uh, Melvin Douglas... Oh, this was also introduced by Ileana Douglas, uh, fittingly, because her grandfather's in the movie. Right. Uh, and she told some great stories. Um, anyway, so Melvin Douglas and Rosalind Russell uh, are getting married. They've, like... He's been in South America for years. She, they met there... He's come back to, they've spent like less than a week together and decided when he came back, they were immediately going to get married. And she's also working on this. Um, she's kind of, I guess she's kind of a, like a sociologist, but for an insurance company. Yeah. Something like that. It's weird. <laughs> totally normal forties um, thing. <laughs> and, and so she has this idea, like she's like my company, you know, as an insurance company, we're paying out too much money on divorces. We need to like do a study as to like how a family can stay together. And so she decides to be the, test subject which is which means she's going to marry her husband and then not have sex with him for three months right but here's where I, what i don't here's where i start to like um to question it is that when she's talking to her sister the whole not having sex thing is about not bringing kids into or not pregnancy and kids into the marriage too early on but i think it's also about because her sister says there should be a way to live with a man you know you gotta you don't really know until you live with them Okay. And so I think it's more about like getting to know him before. Okay. Cause maybe I, fi- I fixated on, cause she talking, she's talking, Rosalind also was talking to her sister, um, about, um, their childhood as children of divorce. Right. And so maybe I got too fixated on the children thing. I mean, I think it's just before there's any kind of like permanent bond and you could look at that either with children or just okay. kind of consummating the marriage. Cause I get my thing about the children is like condoms existed in 1940. <laughs> they like, were not widely used. Though. They were not. People have been like, Going back to like the Renaissance, people were putting sheep intestine on no, the dicks. No, I understand. Like, I'm people they have found ways to not get. Yeah. yeah, but they were not widely used, especially among married people. I think they were just like, "Well, this is what's happening now." Uh, but I, I think I, I think I'm more on the right track here because it was much easier to get a marriage annulled than it was to get a divorce in 1940. True. Okay. So. Um, okay, so maybe uh, uh, it, it did seem like there's a lot. It, it, it felt kind of. I mean, it's a farce. You compared it, I think, directly to Three's Company. Yeah, it has, it's a, a sitcom type farce. It's a sitcom sex farce type thing, and so it does keep on making up obstacles. Yes, you know. Um, but once I sort of gave into that, and, and I realized, like, I'm just watching like a you know ninety something minute sitcom with uh, actors that I really like. I right. really like Melvin Douglas. Uh, and and Rosalind Russell, and then the other couple, who is Melvin Douglas's um, uh, lawyer yeah. and his secretary. I love both of them. The, yeah, they were good too. Um, uh, the secretary. I, I, I looked up the actress. I forget her name. It's it's two B's. Like uh, it's a it's an alliterative name. Um, uh, and and yeah, they're they're terrific. Uh, 
And so what exactly were your problems with it? I mean, it's just that kind of like Three's Company plotting of... I mean, especially once it introduces this idea. So Melvin Douglas is trying to strike some kind of business deal. I can't remember what with a Peruvian. Oh, yeah. With Lee J. Cobb. With, with Lee J. Cobb is a, a Peruvian. A, a, I was going to say a young Lee J. Cobb. I don't think Lee J. Cobb was no ever young. Yeah. A younger no. Lee J. Yeah. Cobb with a big, bushy mustache <laughs> doing a thick, like, Latin American accent. Yeah. So uh, he's some kind of, like, business guy, and they're it, doing some business deal. But he's it, it alone. Took me, like, I saw his name in the ti- in the opening titles, and it took me, I think, it, like, the scene on the boat, I don't think I realized oh, his really? name. I don't think it was until he showed up at the office or at the that the dinner party that was like oh that's lee jacob <laughs> even if i hadn't recognized him i would have cl- included him by the woman next to me who went there he is <laughs> <laughs> which is a very oh, common tcm reaction. yeah let's put a pin in this thing called love to talk about <laughs> something that i love performative applause <laughs> yeah i yeah definitely the uh oh everyone who recognizes this character yeah. actor clap as soon as he shows up i'm i've never understood clapping for people who aren't present. Right. I don't get no, it. I'm with Especially you. people who aren't even alive. <laughs> because it's, it's performative. Yeah. It's, they totally want you to know that they know who it is. Right. And in, I don't know if this happens in other cities, but in LA people clap for landmarks. I think that was more so at Nora city because it was programmed around. Yeah. A star is born. Got big applause for the Chinese theater though. Let me tell you. But that's because it was like related to the festival. I I'm like, just, all right, all right. I'm just at saying. At Norris City, was out of control because people were applying, like, the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. <laughs> uh, well, that's, um, but that's Johnny's, right? Or was Johnny's not Johnny's? Johnny's no. invisible in this shot. You could see, like, where they're putting the Academy Museum, whatever <laughs> yeah. that department store used to be. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. But again, people want you, want you to know that they know what it is. Yeah. That's completely what it is. Um, yeah. Okay. So that was a, a little bit of a yeah annoyance. Like I, I understand if the person's there, right? Right. Or sometimes that makes sense. that's respectful. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but Wilshire and Fairfax per- ain't there. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, Lee J. Cobb is no longer with yeah. us. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. Back to this thing called love. Um. So yeah, he, he's like situating alone with Melvin Douglas that he will only give Melvin Douglas because he only trusts family men. So oh, cause no, he has seven kids, right? Yeah. He's like, I worked harder when I got kids. So I only trust men who have something to work for. And someone's like, well, he's having kids, but <laughs> Melvin Douglas doesn't want to tell Rosalind Russell this because this will throw off her whole perception of where their marriage is at. And so there's this long dinner scene where, despite being warned already that they shouldn't bring it up, the Latin, the proving couple keeps almost bringing up that Rosalind Russell's pregnant, <laughs> which she's not, which she's not. And she doesn't know that they think she's exactly. Pregnant. And so they have to keep finding ways to distract them and turn the conversation around on yeah. top of them distracting from having sex. And it's just, like, and there's a series of toasts, which yes. is very funny culminating okay. in Rowan Douglas singing America, the beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was very funny. It sounds good in practice. I don't know. There's that kind of threes company setup that is fine in half hour chunks, but when it was basically that for 90 minutes, I was um, exhausted. I, I wasn't exhausted. Uh, uh, I one of my favorite uh, jokes. So in that dinner party yeah. is that the, I mentioned the lawyer and his secretary are yeah. a couple, the lawyer and his wife are separated because of the, he's the right. thing with the, with the secretary divorce, and, but they're on the outs. Yeah. And then they all end up showing up at the dinner together. Right. Not knowing. And, and but this which isn't is the climactic scene of the movie. No, that, <laughs> it that, seems like a good climactic scene, but it forgets all these people by the time the climax actually comes. But there's a joke. So the, the, the lawyer's wife, uh, put by Gloria Dixon. I'm looking okay. at it here. The lawyer's put by Alan Johnson. The secretary's played by Binny Barnes. I told you it's two, two pieces. Good name. Um, 
the lawyer's wife has said because the reason she found out about the thing was because the company bought the secretary or her, her husband yes. the secretary this super expensive evening gown and so she has this joke like if I see her wearing that evening gown I'm going to tear it off her not knowing that in 10 minutes the woman's about to walk through the door yeah. in that evening gown and the payoff to the joke is that she literally tears <laughs> it off her it was pretty great <laughs> oh David you perv uh, but then there was like speaking of Benny Barnes and the period thing the, the there's a whole scene where they decide to go for, for a late night swim right. which is like a really shitty day for night but I know that's old movies but yeah. that's one thing about I generally like have a good suspension of disbelief or like try to understand like that's old movies but when it comes to bad day for night I can I never you. get no, over I it I understand you there um, deep shadows on the ground <laughs> yeah yeah um, and, and, clouds um, in the sky <laughs> yeah uh, and th- so then they decide to go on this like this midnight swim, but then afterwards they're like, because another neighbor couple yeah. is also on a midnight like walk. So, so then it's they like, have to hide and they get up in poison oak, which then delays the sexual intercourse for a whole nother act. Yeah. <laughs> After oh, yeah. which they've forgotten the secretary, forgotten the friend, forgotten the Peruvian people. Yeah. Yeah. Just abandoned the, the, the all of po- poison oak story. That's just what I'm saying. It, it seems like multiple episodes of a sitcom in yeah. a way. It's like a it, three but part. It's a good thing. Three's company episode. Uh, yeah. And just to be clear, we're not knocking three's company, right? Cause okay. you better not do that in my three's presence. Company's is fine for their half hour stories. Okay. If there was a um, three part three's company episode. I think I'd be out. I would be. All there. right. Well, we can't talk about this movie forever, but I do want to, speaking of the poison oak, there is the, there is an adorable dog in the movie. And at one point, when Benny Barnes and Melvin Douglas are both, like, wrapped up in bandages to keep them from scratching themselves, there's an inexplicable shot of the dog wrapped in bandages. <laughs> and I don't, know if, I don't know what the implication is that the dog got into the bandages, but it's super cute when the dog is wrapped up in the bandages. Nothing wrong with that. All right. Uh, Julie, what's next? Well, we saw a movie together. I don't know if you realize that. I was at Heaven Can Wait. Okay. Um, so should I talk about yeah, that? Yeah, let's talk right. about Heaven Can Wait. So to be clear, this is the 70s Warren Beatty one, not the 40s Ernst Lubitsch one, if anyone right. was horribly confused by that. It's also not Here Comes Mr. Jordan or Down to Earth. It is none of those things, correct. So Although Down to Earth came up in the... In the Q&A, it did. So the Q&A <laughs> was with Diane Cannon, who's in the movie in an Oscar-nominated performance, and Buck Henry, who's quite old uh-huh. and has really long pauses after being asked questions, but Ben Mankiewicz rolled with it. Um but- I got the impression... He seemed together. I felt like his long pauses yeah. were like... He was just putting together what to say. I don't think yeah. he was like... He's still funny. Confused. He's yeah. still like well, sharp. A, yeah. What I mentioned Down to Earth is that Ben Anquist was like... Yeah. And then Chris Rock made a version called Down to Earth, which is okay. And, and Buck Henry goes, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one part he didn't take a long pause. That's <laughs> said, true. No, he was not. right. He was John Ann's spot with that. Um, Diane Cannon also... So she was married to Cary Grant for several years. So Ben Mankiewicz says like, so this crowd, I got to ask a Cary Grant question. And just... Diane Cannon literally interrupts him to go, oh, I told you we had great sex. Like, just <laughs> apropos of nothing. So that was delightful. Um, I had never seen this before. Had you? Uh, no, I had seen... Um, I rem- I have this memory of it coming on cable. I didn't grow up with cable. We were at my uncle's house. And it came on cable, and my dad was like, oh, this movie's so good when I was a kid. And watching... So I, I think I had seen the part, like, up until he gets into uh the the body i forget the character's name um so i'd seen all the death in the heaven stuff okay um which now i'm gonna let the cat out of the bag is the best part of the movie and it kind of goes downhill from there and then has a really great ending but i kind of feel the same way about here comes mr jordan they both have a great setup 
and then I don't actually care about much of the story once it gets into that. I enjoyed it a lot. I think so. It's co-written by Elaine May, which you can really tell. It has a lot of different types of comedy. It has like characters who are really deadpan. It has really wacky sight gags. And apparently, this was. I guess here comes Mr. Jordan is like not really that funny. Or it is. I've never uh, seen it. I, no, I don't think it's a comedy, really. I've seen yeah. it. It's, and then yeah. I think it's based on a play, too, which is also not that funny. So, Which is called Heaven Can Wait, by the way. Right. So they milk a lot of humor from the fact. So basically the plot is that there's a football player who dies and then he goes to heaven. It turns out he was taken from his body too soon. They try to return him. He's been cremated. So they have to find a new body. Um, he wants the body of an athlete. They say, hold on, we're trying to sort it out. They find him a business tycoon who is his wife is trying to murder. So they milk a lot of humor out of the fact that he's a dumb jock inheriting the body of a business tycoon and like trying to figure out business, which is very funny to me. Um, it's definitely a weird blend of genres. I would say it's a romantic comedy fantasy, which it's from 1978, and I feel like in the 80s, like by the 80s, they figured out romantic comedic fantasies because you have like Groundhog Day and Princess Bride, and it like really hit its stride. But I feel like this kind of predates that by a little bit, but I think it still gets that blending pretty well. I, um, Perhaps you disagree? Well, I, no, I, the, the romance part of it, the comedy was not was really hit or miss for me because I actually didn't like a lot of the business stuff. It felt less like comedy and more like... Warren Beatty, just knowing his politics, being like, here's an ethical way to run a business and like kind of <laughs> well, making that, that point over But then and over there's again. also the fact that the character, the body he's inhabit, Leo Farnsworth, I believe uh, is the yes, name. Leo's wife and his assistant are constantly trying to murder him. That's, so that's another that's thing that's very funny. The Diane Cannon and Charles Grodin are the funniest. They're, the they're incredible. And uh, then like, especially when he, he comes into the bedroom. Yep. He knocks on the, and like, so Charles Gordon hides behind the curtain. Yeah. Cause the wife and his sister are having an affair. Yes. Right. Yes. And so he comes in to say something to Diane, Can Diane Cannon, but he knows that Charles Gordon's in there. And then he just like speaks to him and there's yeah. a pause. And then Charles Gordon responds from behind the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> that I laughed very hard. At. There's that also a, my, maybe my biggest laugh. In a gag where they rig up something to kill him, something on his fancy bed. So he walks. <laughs> yeah. David knows. <laughs> So he walks into the bedroom, is watching the TV absentmindedly, throws his coat on the bed, an elaborate booby trap just comes down on it. And then in the other room, the wife and his sister are like, thank God he's dead. And he immediately walks back in that room and it's like, oh, another thing. And they're just, yeah. So just like stuff like that is really well, funny. I don't I know. Liked the part uh, up, like I said. Up until he gets into Leo Farnsworth, thank you, uh, thank you. His body. There's a lot of really dark comedy when they're uh, when they're uh, when they're checking out other bodies. Yeah, because like, like, it's always people who are just about to <laughs> right. die so that they would do a last minute swap. It's yeah. Warren about Henry arguing about whether this body is good enough while the guy is like dying in a fire car <laughs> yes. accident just off screen. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. And then yeah, the whole. Um, also, the, James Mason plays a godlike figure, which yeah. is excellent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I like the beginning and then the very end, which I won't get into, but when right. it is when it gets to the more specifically romantic stuff, I think Warren Betty and Julie Christie are like so great um, in those in those moments, and yeah. because so much is about like, can you look in someone's eyes and tell it's the you know mm -hmm. in this fantasy world can you tell just by looking in the person's eyes that it's the same person even though the body is different and they actually i think sell that yeah really well i like the end at the football stadium but uh 
Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't my favorite thing. Maybe it was just the fatigue of having already seen four movies that yeah. day. <laughs> Couldn't help. I mean, I think it's it's not going to change your life. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, everyone's hair looks ridiculous. I just needed to get that off my chest. Um, Julie Christie has a perm that just defies all logic. But another interesting thing, and then we can move on, is that so in the original play and the 40s version, the main character is a boxer. So for this version, they wanted to cast Muhammad Ali in the lead. Well, I think didn't Buck Henry say Warren Beatty wanted to cast? Warren Beatty wanted to cast. <laughs> and he wanted to cast Eugene McCarthy in the James yes. Mason role. So this was co-directed by Warren Beatty and Buck Henry. So, um, so yeah, he wanted to cast Muhammad Ali and he was interested, like Muhammad Ali was interested, but it was just like a scheduling thing and they couldn't make it work. Um, Maybe Muhammad Ali is like a great actor. We'll never know. I just think that's a weird choice because the character is like a total doofus. <laughs> like he's just, he's the type of kind of bimbo character that Warren Beatty is really good at playing. Like in Shampoo, it's like a similar character to that. And like Muhammad Ali is just really intense. And I feel like maybe if you wrote it completely differently, but I feel like part of why the movie works is he's playing this lovable doof who's just like kind of this idiot jock. So I guess I'm glad that didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. all, all love to Muhammad Ali, but that's just a weird could have been. And then, okay, the other thing before we move on is I just love the history of the titles of this movie because the play is Heaven Can Wait. Yeah. The movie is Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Then there's a Heaven Can Wait that has nothing to do with it. Right. Then there's this Heaven Can Wait. Yeah. But meanwhile, Mr. Here Comes Mr. Jordan had a sequel. Oh. called Down to Earth. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and then they made a movie called Down to Earth with Chris Rock. Do they know there are other titles <laughs> yeah, available? <I> <laughs> uh, all right, Scott, you're up. Yeah, my next movie uh, is The Story of G.I. Joe, <clears throat> directed by William Wellman, uh, based on... Who had at least three films at the festival this year. Yeah, yeah. big year for Wellman. Yeah. Uh, and big year for his son, William Wellman Jr., to go around uh, giving very <laughs> scripted answers in the Q&As. <laughs> um, it's a World War II movie based on the reporting of Ernie Pyle, who won a Pulitzer for his war reporting. It was actually released two months after uh, Pyle died uh, in Japan reporting on the war. Um, and it is a the most brutal World War II movie I've seen from this era. Uh, there's no real heroism or love of combat. There's plenty of sentiment, but only about what the boys are missing back home and kind of the inevitable fact that many of them will die. Uh, and it's just mostly about them trying to survive from battle to battle, mostly not doing like terribly well, but mostly just slogging along and keeping the war going. Um, you know, it has kind of the familiar personality types. There's the young guy who's a little reager. There's like a very Italian guy who speaks a little Italian and gets uh, into a little relationship with an Italian woman. <laughs> uh, there's most lovely of all, an amazing puppy that they take from battle to battle who survives the entire movie. Don't worry. Oh, Thank good. God. <laughs> yeah. Very adorable puppy. Uh, and it's also the breakout role uh, for Robert Mitchum. And this was his only Oscar nomination, which is eager to see why. Um, it's one of the rare films where he kind of plays an admirable character and has a speech summarizing the film's moral position, which is always is a surefire way to a supporting actor nomination, uh, at least in the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, and he kind of talks about the fact that as a leader, writing home to families of men who have died under him, he kind of feels in some way like he's killed them because he has to keep uh, relaying the fact of their death. Um, but yeah, it's a really kind of stripped down and it's the kind of world, it's kind of war movie I like where nothing really happens for a reason. It's very chaotic and it's very, uh, predicated on the fact of imminent death. Um, I, I think a lot of that comes from Pyle's reporting. I think the reason they were able to get away with even making it in the time was because Pyle was so respected uh, 
Harry Truman even said of him, no man in this war has so well told the story of the American fighting man as the American fighting man wanted it told. He deserves the gratitude of his, all his countrymen. Uh, Pyle said of the movie, they are still calling it the story of G.I. Joe. I never did like the title, but nobody could think of a better one, and I was too lazy to try. <laughs> uh, yeah, very solid movie. Um, well, I guess I already talked about Heaven Can Wait, so what's next for you? I, I, I had an early night on Saturday, so. Okay. Go ahead. Then I will, I will actually go back then. In between this thing called Love and Heaven Can Wait, I crammed in another 35-millimeter film. Um, uh, I think, yeah. Uh, a color film. I was trying to think how many color. Uh, this was the first 35 millimeter color film I saw uh, um, at the festival. Uh, 1938's The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, directed by Norman Torog, whom I mostly know as being one of the like 18 uncredited Wizard of Oz directors. Yeah. You know, Wizard of Oz is like Victor Fleming with them. Yeah. There's like a bunch of people. I also think he went on to direct a lot of Jerry Lewis movies. Um, maybe. Oh, I think he did Cinderella, maybe? Did that he, was Tashlin. That was Tashlin? Okay. Did he do Babes in Arms, too? Or wait, no. There's there's like a Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney one that I'm thinking of. Busby Berkeley did a lot of those. But I feel like he did one okay. of them. Anyway. Uh, I think Norman Turek did like Who's Buying You the Store, or like those yeah. kind of... Um, yeah, he did Boys Town with Mickey Rooney. Oh, Boys Town. Okay. Um, and he did... Skippy? What is that? Uh-uh. 1931. Well, I'm not going to go. He's got 185. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to go through go all Go through them all. Um, but yeah, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Here's the 1938. There was a cast member in attendance. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the girl who plays, not Becky Thatcher, but the other, uh, the previous uh, object of his, uh, of Tom's affection. The, uh, the, I guess the Rosalind to... Uh, Becky Thatcher's Juliet. Sure. Right? Is it Rosalind? <laughs> yeah. Uh, in Julian and Juliet? Yeah. Okay. Um, Rosaline, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Something like that. Anyway. Um, uh, the character's name, Amy Lawrence. Anyway, so she was there. They did the Q&A after, and I didn't stay because I had to rush to make Heaven Can Wait. So I don't know... Um, but uh, I just thought it was worth mentioning that this woman yeah. uh, from a 1938 movie was 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 present. That's the magic of TCM Fest. Uh, yeah, um, but this is a, a, a really really energetic and lively movie. Um, it is. Uh, I don't know. I guess much like this thing called love, it's very episodic, but that's the nature of the adventures of Tom Sawyer. It really is just a series of adventures, and there's not really there's not a through line to that novel it's just a bunch of it's tom's coming of age uh, yeah i guess it's tom's coming of age although i've never i as a kid i always thought tom sawyer was kind of a priss <laughs> i thought i thought he was like the eddie haskell and huckleberry finn was the cool one that's what I thought as a kid. Uh, I was like, yeah, but I was like, he's, fuck he's Tom still, Sawyer. He still has some growing to do. Uh, I guess, but yeah, I never liked I, Tom Sawyer as a kid. But I liked, I, I, I still liked uh, all the the stories, um, especially because of the whole Missouri connection. You know, the fact that uh, you know, I mean, obviously, if you grow up. Uh, especially if you grow up going to, you know, white public schools, <laughs> you probably learn a lot about Mark Twain anywhere in America, but in Missouri, you learn about Mark Twain a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, because he is, uh, I guess, one of our favorite sons, um, uh, despite his shit being racist. Yeah, continuing with the racist thing, even in this thing called Love, there was uh, some stuff about the South American, like, natives that Melon Douglas yeah. was, that was uh, uncomfortable. And here you've got Injun Joe, who's the, you know, the... Uh, violent murderous <laughs> bad guy um yeah so they kept going with that but really this is just a a, a, a really really fun I, I keep using the word lively 
um, movie. I will uh, complain about the print a bit, but I, I mean, it's I'll praise and complain the print about the print because uh, this was sort of a, uh, indicative of two different things about old movie prints. One on the on the pro side, it's a Technicolor movie. And this was definitely a testament to the fact that Technicolor held, held, holds up a lot better than like Eastman Color. Like these, this thing looked great. For, for uh, but also, it's not clearly not a new print. It's clearly from a time that prints were being made by the truckful, yeah. and there was less quality control. And so you've got some color separation here, and in, in some things where like it looks like it almost looks in one in one whole scene, it looks like Tom has like blue eyeshadow under his eyes. Oh, but it's just because like how the, glamorous the, the cyan whatever <laughs> right. color was like not lined up or whatever. Um, there's, so there's there, yeah there's some pros and cons uh i don't really mind but i thought it's uh, i figured in the nature of what we're discussing about these old movies it was it's worth uh uh worth mentioning um but uh yeah this was the theater four film movie that was uh maybe only a little over half uh, attended unfortunately yeah story of gi Joe had a lot of empty seats too actually. um yeah but i, I would definitely uh, recommend this adventures of tom sawyer if you like tom sawyer uh this is a a really a really fun uh, interpretation uh, and it still got it got some big laughs especially with the, the what's Tom, Tom Sawyer's um Sid is that the the the, the real priest the like the one who's always telling on him oh yeah uh, yeah he he was the funniest character uh in in the movie all right um and then you have another one yeah i do okay uh, but to follow up on another report uh, norman Torg did direct a mickey rooney judy garland movie uh girl crazy mm. he and busby berkeley directed that one okay uh, and he did direct a lot of jerry lewis and dean martin movies <clears throat> right on what which ones not the ones i've seen actually uh the stooge the caddy uh living it up you're never too young partners which one ones? i think the only Martin and Lewis movie I've seen is At War with the Army, which is terrible. Yeah, it's not that good. Uh, but Hollywood or Bust and Hollywood Artists and Models are the two Tashin ones, and they're amazing. And what? Yeah. What was the second Artists and Models. models. Okay. That one incredible. also has Shirley MacLaine. Yeah. Okay. So, very solid. Uh, my last movie of Saturday, I revisited The Big Lebowski for its 20th anniversary, which I'm so glad I did. Uh, Jeff Bridges was there to kind of do a Q&A, which went on forever, and everyone loved it because Bridges loves this movie, which is kind of awesome. It's really rare, I think, for someone as accomplished as Jeff Bridges to still love that he's associated with this, like, stoner movie. <laughs> Usually <laughs> guys who achieve his level, like, try to distance themselves from it or at least be like, well, I, you know, I have a lot of work. That yeah, you don't see Sean Penn doing that right. beat. is <laughs> like, no, this is my movie, man. I will be remembered till the day I die and long past after this movie, and I'm pumped about it. And actually stayed and watched it, too, which was pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, he came out and led us all in meditation and then just kind of went on some random riffs throughout his career. Uh, it felt like he was like the Chris Farley guy in the interview because Ben Mangles would have this elaborate setup of a question. He'd be like, Starman was great. <laughs> uh, and it was pretty much that for 30 or 40 minutes. And it was a good way to get into the big Lebowski, which I watched constantly in high school and college. I was obsessed with it. Uh, and it kind of changed my life in a little bit. Well, it's got me to calm down a little, hmm. uh, which was useful. Um, but I hadn't seen it since college. I don't think, uh, and I'd never seen it with a crowd, which was a blast. Um, it still works like a charm. The jokes still fly. It felt so modern when I first saw it in like 2002, 2003. But now it feels like, you know, a movie like this would never get made. There's nothing kind of like 
redeeming about it at all. It's just like about these guys going about their lives, bowling and solving mysteries. And uh, there's, I think some social attitudes that are probably a little outdated about it. Um, but it's still just so specific in its characters. The Coens, as much as I love them, I do tend to agree that they take a slightly judgmental view of their characters, which I'm fine with. I don't mind fiction doing that, but it seems like the dude is the one guy they can't get a hold on. Every time they try, <laughs> they try to pin him down, he just like squirrels his way out of it. Do you think that's partially because he was based on a guy they knew? I wonder about that. Um, but I think ultimately they would have no problem judging somebody. Well, fair <laughs> enough. Um, uh, but there's, it seems like they just like figured out, it's one character that seems like he's kind of had that writerly thing you always hear about. The characters kind of speaking for themselves at a certain point in the writing process. Some of the Cohen's characters feel like they're predetermined and everything they say has this like definite track, but it seems like Lebowski or the dude constantly surprises them and they have no knowledge of what he'll do or say in a given situation um, or how the characters will respond to him. One of, some of my favorite jokes are people responding to his crazy remarks, like straightforwardly. There's that part where the, the big Lebowski is like, isn't that what makes a man doing the right thing no matter the cost? And he's like, the dude's like, well, not in a pair of testicles. <laughs> but then the big loss is like, joking, but I suppose you're right. <laughs> like, very gravely. <laughs> and then uh, there's a part with Jackie Treehorn where he's, uh, uh, the dude's like, well, I still jerk off manually. <laughs> Jackie Treehorn's like, of course you do. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a wonderful movie. I know you, on this podcast, you guys like to talk about the fact that it's more important to appreciate it as like a, kind of satire of private eye movies but i want to assure listeners that i appreciate it as a really dumb stoner comedy too. <laughs> and i think that's also how the coen's intended they have a very dumb I, sense of humor a lot of the time that i think yeah. is underappreciated i mean that part at dracula chino house where he does the indent of the thing it's just a guy with a huge direction it's <laughs> one of my favorite coen jokes ever um not to throw Tyler into the bus, but I think you're talking more about Tyler's point okay. of view that, is that he doesn't like that it's only remembered as a stoner comedy. I, uh, I think it's deservedly remembered yeah. <laughs> as a stoner comedy. Um, all right. I have one more movie for Saturday, but I do want to, uh, this has nothing to do with you guys, but something I meant to say earlier to listener James, thank you for the pizzas. Um, this is a very nice guy who sent me months ago. He sent me some pizzas or he sent us some pizzas, me and Tyler, but Tyler only eats pepperoni pizza. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And so I ended up getting both the pizzas. And so James, uh, sent two pepperoni pizzas <laughs> to Tyler. We got them weeks ago, but the, the schedule has been weird with the recording and the commentaries and all this stuff. We kept forgetting to say thank you. So hopefully when Tyler is back on the podcast, he'll have eaten at least one of the pizzas. He can tell you about it. But yes, James, thank you for sending me, sending us pizzas. I meant to say that. Yeah, all, right. all right. So back to the <coughs> film festival. Uh, my last film on Saturday, I'll say this. I, I went almost all day, barely seeing people I knew. I think running from Oxbow to this thing called love. I saw you guys in yeah. the Egyptian courtyard. And it was like, you did waved. The, you and, did that. I'm in a hurry wave. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then like, I also very briefly saw, uh, Nerdist, Kyle Anderson from Nerdist. Uh, there's been two Kyle Andersons on this podcast. Yes, right. Uh, Kyle Anderson from Nerdist, uh, like right before the Tom Sawyer movie. But uh, so I, but I'd seen five movies in a row and hadn't like really spoken to anyone all day, <laughs> um, except for I did call my wife when I saw Lance Bass because Lance Bass was at Hollywood and Highlands. Awesome. Um, just just chilling or. So the, I don't know why he was there like two days early, but because they were getting their star. There, but so well, I don't and know. they have a pop up shop on Saturday. That I met him while I was there. Is on oh, Saturday. Oh yeah, yeah. Saturday, that makes sense. Okay, so the, yeah, he was there, and because there, there were a ton of of um, 
NSYNC fans, which I mean, by which I mean women my age. Yep. Uh, and younger. There are a lot of yeah. younger people in line. Yeah. Uh, the line for that was right next to the line for the TCL. So when I was in line for Lebowski, I was very okay. confused about where to go because I was like, Surely all these like teenage girls are not here to watch the big Cassidy. <laughs> um, well, but the line went all the way into like the rotunda outside the, the Kodak. Cause I was, is the Kodak, it's the Dolby now. Yeah. yeah I still say Kodak. Kind of, um, yeah. Cause I'm up on the third floor. The line is, you know, right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I looked, that's where I saw him. As I looked down, there's all these uh, young women and then they all, there's some bu- like hustle and bustle. So I looked down, Oh, and there's Lance Bass waving, being nice. Um, anyway, so I hadn't spoken to anyone all day. Uh, and then before Spellbound in the Egyptian courtyard and at the Pig and Whistle, I suddenly saw everyone that I knew who was at the <laughs> festival was all... I, a lot I, of people went to Spellbound. Yeah, yeah. I ran into to Kristen and to Matt Patterson uh, and to Mariah, lots of friends of the show. I ran into Kyle again, had a drink with Kyle and some other nerdist uh, folks. So that was... It was great to like be like, oh, right, we're all humans here. <laughs> <laughs> you rediscovered your humanity. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then... But by that point... I had seen five movies. Like I said, I hadn't loved Heaven Can Wait. I was definitely flagging, and Spellbound, unfortunately, is not the movie to watch when you're already tired because it's <laughs> oh, a very no. slow-moving movie. Yeah, it's kind about of dreams. about dreams. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of listless. I don't love it. No, uh, I, th- I think yeah. it's pretty underwhelming. Yeah, I, it I, does I was, have that. It's like a dream sequence yeah, that dream was directed by Salvador Dali. Was it? I don't know about directed Dire- by or like designed. Design, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, heavy input by. Which so that's only, notable. It, that was the only part of the movie that I had seen before mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a in a film class. Um, but then even then, it has it sort of like. You know the very end of Psycho when there's that really labored explanation yep. of yeah. this like psychology. Spell on is that like for a movie? It's 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 too much. Uh, I was I was bummed, but I, I did get it was uh, the only nitrate that I saw, so that was cool. It looked great. Right. Um, I mean, also to put it in context, though, like it doesn't mean it's a good movie now, but that was the time when like psychiatry was really becoming a thing. And like you start to see it pop up then. And like by the fifties, there are so many movies in the fifties, like even comedies where they make casual references to their analysts. It's like kind of startling, Uh but, um, but in the forties it was like kind of a nascent thing for a lot of people in America. So what we see now is like, yeah, duh, like really labored might've at the time been like really interesting. Right. So I don't even think it's like, because it's so one-to-one, like, everything in the dream, like, precisely corresponds well, to Well, yes. So it's almost like trying to sell people on psychiatry for a form of psychiatry that probably didn't even exist then. Yeah. It's like the most broad strokes idea of what it could be. Yeah, I'm not saying this gives it a pass, yeah. just maybe offering some context why it maybe played better then. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, the, only, the one thing I did like about it is that there's something kind of perverse about the fact that Ingrid Bergman is like, as soon as he like says like realizes she, he's like oh i killed someone and like that seems to be when she falls in love with him <laughs> like right she, i mean she later says that she thinks he's too good a man and she doesn't believe but he has told her that he killed someone <laughs> and then she runs away with him <laughs> and i was really excited about that but it didn't really pan out uh all right let's move on to sunday julie you want to start sure so we started our sunday at 9 a.m yeah, speaking like of bad movies to watch when you're tired i mean it's a great movie but yeah we we got real turned See, up i got a later start on sunday 9 15 yeah we got real turned up with the bard so we <laughs> saw i actually saw two shakespeare movies on sunday because i am fancy <laughs> another thing i did twice on sunday was eat an entire sandwich so fast that it was like that scene on 30 rock where 
Liz Lemon eats it in front of the TSA agent because the Egyptian doesn't want you bringing in food, whatever, and I'm on a schedule. Anyway, so we saw a Midsummer Night's Dream. It's the 1935 version. It was adapted by or adapted from a stage production at the Hollywood Bowl that was directed by um, German emigre Max Reinhardt. Apparently, that production was a sensation. All the studios were chasing it. Warner Brothers won. Um, the only two people who carry over from that adaptation from that production were Olivia de Havilland in the role of Hermia, who was the second understudy. So it was like this crazy sequence of events that made her get the role on the stage. And then this was her debut role, and she's like a star from the get go. She's like fully formed hilarious just radiant she was like 18 too it's not like yeah. it's a craft she had been honing for a while no 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 she is like and she they even said hit the ground in the running introduction that she only did the she only did this understudy thing because she thought she could get like college credit or like enough money yeah. to go to college or something something like that and then the other one that carried over was 14 year old mickey rooney yeah um he plays puck who is a, a forest sprite. Um, he plays him as like a feral maniac <laughs> child, which is for definitely a choice. It is not <laughs> what I expected. Apparently he was going for it so hard that he broke his leg during filming. Um, and Jack Warner apparently said like, you keep going or I'll kill you. Something like that. You know, old timey <laughs> Hollywood. Um, I've been trying to like get more Shakespeare into my life. I think, you know, He's very important for a reason, obviously. I'm trying to kind of get to the root of that. I also find that as I get older, it's a lot easier to understand. Fancy that. So I think this is one of his more accessible works. It's very funny. Um, Even though the movie's a little long, I think it is a good entry point if you're trying to get more Shakespeare. The plot is not that complicated. It's just like mistaken identity. Um, But it's also a lot of magic. I think it's his only play that leans this heavily into magic. And I think that also made the film medium really great for this because the special effects are like kind of good. They're great. You have flying fairies. You have the fairies. Every time they show up, everything twinkles, which is really cool. Um, So one of the more notable plot points is that someone's head turns into a donkey head. And it's, like, really realistic. I was not ready for that donkey head. (laughs) It's, like, animatronic, too. Like, the mouth moves, the ears move. Like, I I almost think they, like, took a real donkey head and hollowed it out (laughs) or something. But anyway, um, so, like, just... You know, I've seen it performed on the stage, too, and it's still good, but I think seeing it on the screen kind of gave it, like, another level. Um, It's also, like, you know, it's a real who's who of 1930s Warner Brothers, including the incredibly inspired casting of James Cagney as Bottom. So James Cagney is the one who gets his head turned into a donkey, and that is as wonderful as you would hope. Um, But he was had really only been playing gangster roles up to this point for the most part, and kind of these, like, fast-talking hucksters. So he just plays this idiot. Like, he just plays this super goofy idiot who turns into a donkey, and it's, like, incredible. Um, If you're afraid of Shakespeare, I think it's a good entry point as long as you can handle long scenes of fairies dancing, I guess would be and my recommendation. Performed very broadly, yeah. which sounds like kind of a backhanded compliment, but I think it works for the Shakespeare's comedies, especially. Um, it seemed like Warner brothers were very aware that Shakespeare was a tough sell for audiences. So they wanted to make sure the performers like gestured and made everything super clear. Um, and a lot of Shakespeare's comedy just like is broad. Like, yeah, you know, totally. there's the fancy language, but a lot of the jokes are like not that sophisticated. Yeah. So body. Yeah. I, I think it is not untrue to the material to make it broad. Yeah. Um, Carrie Bouchon in her introduction talked about how Warner brothers is kind of an unlikely studio to take on Shakespeare because they're more known for kind of that, 
street level tough guy kind of stuff. Um, but I actually think their experience making the Buzzbeer Berkeley musicals a couple years prior um, really set them up for that kind of special effects stuff. Yeah. Um, which is obviously less kind of. I don't know. There's a certain jokiness, I guess, to Busby Berkeley stuff. But if you just transform that into the pure beauty of them, then you kind of get a sense of what they're going for here. It actually reminded me a lot of uh, Pal and Presbyter's Tales of Hoffman. Um, mm-hmm. has a similar deployment of special effects and a similar kind of dreamlike quality. And it's really incredibly beautiful. I do think the play is naturally a little too long by the time it gets to the play within a play, which only tangentially relates to the story we've experienced thus far. It feels like it's gone an act too long. Um, but yeah, all the performances are great. The special effects are really well deployed. It's just a really lovely film. Also, the cinematography, it won Best Cinematography, and it was the only write-in winner of an Oscar ever. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was fun. Um, it was on film, which I, it's hard to say because the, the print looked a little soft to me, but I also don't know if that was just like what it looked like. Yeah, because there's a lot of superimpositions and stuff. Yeah. So that's what I'd say. Awesome. But yeah. All right. Well, it looks, sounds like we all started off our Sunday morning with uh, Mickey Rooney movies because I <laughs> sure. saw what ended up being my favorite thing I saw the entire TCM Fest, which was um, Carol Ballard's 1979 film, The Black Stallion. Um, uh, again, this was on film. This is at the Egyptian 35 millimeter, millimeter. And it's this movie is so beautiful. You ha- you, have you seen no. it? Mm-mm. It's but it's uh, Caleb Deschanel or uh, it, yeah, it's Caleb yeah. Deschanel's first movie as a cinematographer. Oh wow! It came out after more more American Graffiti, but he shot it first. Apparently, apparently Black Stallion sat for a while because mm-hmm. the studio didn't know what to do with it because it's like a family kids movie, but it's also like weirdly artsy and like mm-hmm. a magical realist at time, but not, not full on magical realist, but there's some suge- suggestions, you know, there's a part where he loses the horse. Um, uh, and he's looking for the horse to this like industrial part of town. And it's like all foggy. And all of a sudden, like another man with like a horse and carriage just comes out of the fog. And it's like, <laughs> I know where your horse is. <laughs> it's like, uh, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's about a kid, um, who's, uh, I don't know what year it is. It's like the thirties or something. I can't remember. Um, and the kids in Northern Africa with his dad taking the boat, uh, back. He's on the boat. Uh, his dad's played by Hoyt Axton, the, uh, dad from gremlins. Um, uh, uh, and then there's a fire on the boat. The boat sinks. The only survivors are the boy and this Arabian racing horse. Um, that's uh that we met when he was on the boat he's wild this horse no one can you know people who bought him can't like handle him or whatever and so they like this boy and the horse wash up on the shore of like a uh an island um uh off of um i'm not sure i'm not sure the movie actually says where it is um i looked it up where it is in the novel now i can't remember uh anyway so then there's depending on which source you read between 25 and 28 minutes at that point of there being no dialogue, just <laughs> the boy and the horse on the Island, like becoming friends. Um, and it's absolutely, absolutely gorgeous stuff. Um, and, and also absolutely sets the tone for the rest of the movie when, you know, which completely depends on the bond between this boy and, and the horse. Um, so then, yeah, eventually he's, Rescued comes back home, brings the horse with him, and Mickey Roney plays the former jockey who owns a has a farm and has room, you know, because this this kid lives in the suburbs with his mom Terry Gar. Uh, um, uh, they don't have room for a horse. There's a funny scene where the horse is in the backyard and then it gets spooked by the garbage man and runs to the town. And is knocking over apple carts, literally upsetting apple carts. <laughs> um, 
anyway, uh, and so Mickey Rooney, that's where Mickey Rooney comes in as a, a, a retired jockey. Um, yeah, but I, I, I honestly, I mean, there's a lot of great story, a lot of great acting, but the story is not really, it, it's, it, it's just Carol, Carol Ballard's feel for, uh, the, the, the emotional connection first between the boy and the horse, but also eventually between boy and Mickey Rooney, the boy and Mickey Rooney, because he become, because you remember Hoyt Axton dies at the very beginning of the movie. So he becomes another, another father figure. But then there's also this question of like, they want to get this horse is really fast. Like, oh, let's get him into, let's get him into racing. And you know, it, there's some question of like, is Mickey Rooney trying to like make a comeback? Is he trying to use this horse? But even then it never really gets into full on villainy. Um, but, uh, even like the, the, the cinematography by Caleb Deschanel, um, keeps, keeps surprising. Even you'd think that the most beautiful thing, it probably is the most beautiful thing, but you'd think once you're off this Island, you're like, okay, we're going to be back to something a little more conventional. But even then there's, like I said, there's the thing with the fog. There's a scene at night at a racetrack in the rain that is so gorgeous that it, it felt like, um, do you remember, like, when gifts were kind of new? <laughs> right? Didn't expect yeah, this. All right. This. And people would do the thing where it's like, this, oh, look, this looks like a picture of a restaurant or whatever. But then, like, a car would drive by in oh, reflection. Yeah. You yeah. know, it looked like a still, still picture, but then you realize, and there's a, a couple of shots in this rain sequence that could almost be that, where it's like Mickey Rooney and the boy, like, having heart to heart and just, like, looking at each other and, like, the silence plays out and they're just sitting there and you're just seeing the rain fall behind them. Uh, and the sort of like light reflecting off the rain puddles and then the, 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 the chrome wheel wells of the, the old 1930s cars. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, and I, um, I shouldn't be surprised because Carol Killer Ballard also made one of the other great boy and his pet movies, which is Duma. I don't know if you guys ever saw Duma. No. Uh, this was like 2003, 2004. Um, uh, Duma is about a boy and his pet cheetah, but it, it's, it's so good. Um, but yeah, I was really blown away by, by black stallion. I, I, I think I thought it was going to be something a little more treacly, which it's not. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it definitely has big emotions in it, but they're big emotions expressed much more quietly and gracefully. Uh, and like I said, almost entirely visually, you know, there's long, like I said, there's one long part without dialogue, but there's also a lot that happens without, without it being spoken. Um, and I've gone on too long with the black stallion, but it's, it was my favorite thing that I saw at the festival. Fair enough. Well, the next film we all shared. Yeah, so let's uh, all talk at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Ready to go. Uh, uh, yeah, taking a film, one, two, three, uh, which was the first time seeing it for all of us. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think we'd all heard. This is the 70s one, if that was unclear. Yeah. They're not throwing it back <laughs> to, what, 2010 or yeah. whatever? Uh, that would be very fun. but yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we all had the same experience of, like, we've heard about this movie, like, our practically our whole lives heard how good it was and still thought it was even better than we heard. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. I have no notes except, well, there were some unfortunate racial and sexual slurs. That was one of the things that I like kind of cringed at, but well, other than but that, no notes. I'm trying to think like the one that's sticking out to me, the racial slur is said by the, worst of the bad like we're not supposed to like that guy yeah that, that, Elizondo character. right he's supposed to be bad that i understand Julie, but like you understand who the villains were in this movie <laughs> it was the guys trying to stop the hijacking right <laughs> no um just let the guys have the money no walter Matthau and the asian and, visitors yeah, the, that was yeah, bad oh, and then there right. was 
there was a guy credited in the end credits as the homosexual, which is not great. <laughs> That's pretty 70s. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, again, product of the time, I was yeah. just like, ooh, really wish they hadn't. But Walter Matthau is just, I could watch him read the phone book. I could watch yeah. him do anything for any period of time. But, and he uh, delivers. Not to belabor the Walter Matthau racism thing, but isn't part of the... <laughs> I'm obviously we're all like white people here, so this is dumb. But isn't part of the joke that he it like looks like a buffoon? Yeah, both with the and then there's also there's the lieutenant or whatever. That's that, the best yeah. that he's been talking to on, <laughs> on the radio the entire movie that he doesn't realize is a black man. Yeah. and it's, he's this very tall, imposing, like sunglasses wearing black man. And Walter Matthau has this the reaction of like, oh, I thought you were. I thought you'd look different or something yeah. like that. I thought you'd be shorter. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Which um, is a funny thing to say about someone you've only spoken to over the phone. Right. Yeah. And so in both cases, it kind of feels like the joke is on Walter Matthau. Right. I, I think the, I think that instance is more clear. I think the instance with the Japanese businessman is he spent so long <laughs> demeaning them and the film kind of demeans them too. That just have like one slight. I mean, turn. he also oh, right. calls I them think, monkeys. Yeah, right. Like just that's not great. Turn, they exit the picture feels like kind of a yeah. glad hand kind of thing. But I don't want to belabor this because yeah, this movie yeah. is incredible. Um, it's very, very funny, which is not what you would expect. Yeah. There's another yeah. movie where I was expecting it to be constant tension. Yeah. It's like it's super very funny. funny, but it's also like, you know, Bruce Goldstein from the film forum introduced it and he was saying like this is a true New York movie and all New Yorkers love this movie which like okay fine but I think what it does get right whether this is true or not there's this idea that New Yorkers like take the most absurd situations in stride and just yeah. are kind of gruffly annoyed by it uh-huh. I think like Dog Day Afternoon explores this like half of Dog Day Afternoon is the hostages like complaining <laughs> so I think this kind of is in that vein which is a source of a lot of comedy but is also just kind of like you know unexpected um something he veered into in his introduction which like i don't care about is he's like there's so many other movies where the geography's wrong right. i'm like you're never gonna get me incensed about this oh, i'm see, sorry that, that is a that's a that's a bet noir for me oh. I, I want my movies to be uh but they're, i want they're geographical movies. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> that's what i want um but I, uh, okay, we should talk about how good the movie is, but I also want to complain about the <laughs> intro a little bit. As someone who had never seen the movie before, as we all are, I was kind of annoyed that it's like, we're going to spend 20 minutes of you showing us clips of the movie. Like, yeah. I understand there were only like two or three clips, but I still like. And it was all kind of from the beginning of the movie. Yeah, I was still kind of annoyed. I was like, just get, just get to the movie. Um, it wasn't as bad as when uh, Julie and I saw, ah, oh, hell, what was the name of that Barbara Stanwyck movie directed by King Vidor? Stella Dallas? Yeah. And they showed an intro clip about Barbara Stanwyck that just had the end of Stella Dallas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, yeah, so let's talk about how good the the movie is then. Yes. Um, I mean, you guys already did talk about that. I think the sense of humor is a huge, a huge part of it, but it's also a, it's a great... Um, I guess it's a heist movie. Yeah. Um, and it's, um, it's my favorite kind of heist movie. It, and all the best ones are kind of structured this way where the characters, or at least some of the characters know what the plan is, but the audience doesn't. Right. You right. know what I mean? Um, that's why the ocean, why oceans, I was going to say the oceans 11 movies. I only ever saw the first, the, the oceans 11, but that's what I love about that, that they, they all know what we're doing and we're learning. We're one step behind. Right. Um, and, and I, and I like that. I also like that it, um, uh, it, it takes, it takes a turn and, and you think it's, you think it's going to be all about that, the heist, like leading up to getting them the money, but like the decision to pay the, the kidnappers or yeah, whatever is pretty early. Yeah. Pretty early. And then it becomes about, 
uh, logistics. How, yeah, the logistics. <laughs> of how you, because the big question is, how do you hijack a subway train and get away when yeah. you're trapped in a tunnel? And yeah. it becomes so much about that that uh, I, I really, I really enjoyed uh, that aspect of it. And they mentioned he mentioned that in the intro how there was concern when the movie came out that like the New York government was like we're concerned about showing this movie because it like shows people how to hijack a subway and the filmmakers were like, no, the whole point is you can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like this isn't something against hijacking the subway. But that was a concern at the time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you've got, and you've got a great cast. We mentioned Walter Matthau. I mentioned Hector Elizondo. You've also got Martin Balsam and Robert Shaw and Jerry Stiller. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great. And yeah. Um, Doris Roberts, uh, the 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 mom from Everybody Loves Raymond, yeah. is the the mayor's wife. Oh, how about that? And she has a couple of terrific lines. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yes. She's only in that one sort of extended scene. I guess right. it's a scene cut up into a couple of scenes. But, um, yeah, her her final line, like yeah. Yeah. 18 sure votes, or 18 guaranteed votes, yeah. that is very funny. But it's also like a well-oiled machine. Like, I don't think you could take anything out. No. Like, mm-hmm. if you took yeah. anything out of that movie, like wouldn't make sense anymore. Yeah. Even I mean, one of my favorite small characters is the police captain who's kind of manning the subway entrance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. on the radio. <laughs> uh, I can't remember his lines, but every single the one is like underground. No, 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 no above no. ground. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember any of his lines, but every reaction he has to everything is completely gold. Yeah. What is it? Cause what does he say? Like people start booing and he's like, Oh, the mayor's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah, we loved. It. We, I'm sure we could just like the quote, music too is awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's so seventies. First thing I wrote down in I, my I notes didn't was how good this music, is. but it like I was so glad we saw it at the Egyptian because one, it's a big screen, but they also crank the sound up. And so from the second the score started, I was like, "All right, this is gonna be a great movie." Yeah. Um, David's looking it up. Yeah, because I did. write made it. I went on my way to write it down. David Shire. Nice. Uh, yeah. Is his name no relation to Howard Shore? In case you were wondering. <laughs> uh, very curious. <laughs> nope. Um, well, he's got a lot of a uh, lot of credits. A lot of credits. Okay. Um, I don't know. I can't remember who's who's next. Um, this was your system. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> I've only got one movie left. I'll just. We've only got it. one movie left. I think. Okay. Well, so I have two. Okay. Uh, all right. I'll go, and then you guys do and yours. Julie, right. Julie one. All right. Um, and now I'm forget. Oh my god! Yeah, the last movie I saw, I ended up loving. You had you've seen this Silk Stockings, right? Didn't you tell I me? I saw seen it, it a long time ago and don't remember it that well, but I have seen it. Yes. Um. I, yeah, I was really really into it. This was uh, another um, DCP that looked very good. Um. Not not a hundred percent, but I you know it, it looked pretty good. Um. But this is a um. Uh. Why am I drawing a blank on the female? A musical lead? remake it's, of Nanachka? No, not yes, where you're going. Okay. Of Nanachka with <laughs> starring Sid Charisse. With Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse. Um, and also, um, I have to look her up. But, uh, yeah, it's, so it's a musical remake of Nanachka with um, Peter Lorre um, yeah. singing and dancing. I mean, right right on. dancing is not really what he did. It's actually, they kind of make a joke about him not dancing, where every time, there's two different times where there's a big number that he's in, and everyone else is dancing around, and he just rests his elbows between like a table and a chair and does like the Russian like kicking thing for like I the mean, entire song. Especially by the 1950s, which I mean, yeah. Peter Lorre like seemed to get shorter and wider <laughs> yeah. the more he aged. So. He like turned into Gru yeah. by the end. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a big, uh, loud, colorful musical. Um, uh, Janice Page is the one I particularly wanted to, to, to point out. The, 
because the first era is making a movie and uh um with a Russian composer and the Russians come to the Russians are coming to Paris to, uh, bring back their composer or whatever. Uh, but Janice page plays the, the, the sort of, uh, the ingenue who's going to be starring in this new movie. And there's a running joke about how this is her first non swimming role. <laughs> <laughs> like she's clearly known as like a, like they list all her movies and it's like the singing mermaid. And it's like all this, uh, and there's also a, a, great, a great running joke. They never, they never really hang a lantern on, of because it's never nothing's ever said uh but um in the scenes between fred astaire and janice page fred astaire keeps trying to take keep her from drinking alcohol like apparently she has a problem <laughs> and so there's this this running thing in all their scenes where he's like hiding bottles or like taking champagne out of her hand and, and then someone hands her another champagne and he has to come get that um and, and then they have the their number together fred astaire and janice page is the best number in the movie uh, because it's about, uh, and we talked about with, uh, well, success boy rock hunter and the sort of making fun of people watching TV, you know, yeah, uh, and, and the size of the screen. And so they have a song that's about technicolor, cinemascope, stereophonic sound. Like it's about all of the huh. tricks and like, uh, they, they name check Todd AO, which is like a, <laughs> like a specific, <laughs> it seems so specific to me, but maybe people knew what Todd AO was at the time. I feel like I think was, it was pretty far out there in advertising and stuff. Okay. Um, but yeah, they have a whole song about, because I guess they're going to make their movie and all of these things. Right. So, but, but it's a song that's like, it has nothing to do with the story of the movie. It does seem like Fred Astaire and Janice Page singing a song to the audience about here's what you like these days. Here's what you like. Here's why you come to movies now for a glorious Technicolor and Cinemascope. And then they men- they mentioned like uh, Metro Color and like Vista Vision. And I like the- everything gets name checked in this song. Uh, uh, that was that was really good. So wait, um, remind me where the Nanachka plot comes in. <laughs> um, so. Sicherice plays uh, the um, Russian, she's Nanochka, she plays the uh, uh, Russian uh, minister's agent or whatever, who's, she's part of the cultural agency or whatever, who's come to, because first the three guys, Peter Laurie and two other guys, were sent to get, bring the the um, the uh, composer back to, to Moscow, and then they ended up falling in love with Paris, with Paris and they get drunk all the time. Uh, and so she's like the super serious, like right. Moscow's okay. secret weapon. And so she's going to come and convince the, uh, the, 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 you know, either approve this work being done in the movie or bring it back. And then Fred Astaire and her start, you know, they fall right. in love okay. or whatever. And she, you know, she laughs, she laughs, she loosens yes. up. <laughs> I wish it were a two way street. I wish he, like warmed up to socialism <laughs> and she, and she learned mean, to have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it doesn't go that way. I feel like when I, cause I saw the movie in college, I just like rented the DVD or something. And I feel like I, I don't think I had seen Anochka at the time and I didn't know it was based on that. So like, I feel like when you don't have that background, I was like watching and I'm like, this is weird. Like this doesn't really make any sense. And I kind of wished I had known it was based on that movie. Cause otherwise it just seemed very strange, but well, I own the Blu-ray if you want to watch it again, uh, right on. I think it was strange in a, in a good way. Cause there's like, I yeah. said, there's, uh, there's a lot of color. There's a lot of big, fun dance numbers also the name silk stocking it's not just a clever name there are multiple numbers about underwear <laughs> all right okay <laughs> there's a whole thing where the the russian composer that all the russians want to come back um uh fred astaire wants her to stay and so he like 
asks Janice Page to like, you know, sort of seduce him. And so she asks him to come to the department store. And so there's a whole thing of her like trying on lingerie <laughs> and singing a song um, uh, about silk and lace to him. Uh, yeah, it's really, really cool. Yeah, right on. Uh, it, it was uh, I, it, this was the movie maybe of all the things that I saw that I knew the least about um, uh, or, or at least had heard the least about um, the main reason I wanted to see it was directed by Ruben Mamoulian who made um, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde um, and it, it, he had just been on my mind because I've been looking up Armenian uh, or Armenian descended directors because Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day was like just a few like two days before the festival uh, and so I had been looking up Armenian directors and I was like oh this guy's gonna movie the festival so that's why I went to see it and it ended up being a really great note to go out on his first four sound films are really incredible by the way I think he's yeah. kind of underrated director Love Me Tonight right uh, City, Streets, City Streets Dr. Jekyll and then Applause yeah. which was like 1929 it was like one of the first sound yeah. films and it's like so seamless it's beautifully made alright um, yeah. yeah we ended the festival nope like, nope I got one more son of a all right, go ahead. Okay. Um, so continuing on my Shakespeare train, I saw Hamlet. Just a casual, casual Sunday afternoon. So this was the Laurence Olivier one from 1948, which won Best Picture and Best Actor and among other things. Which pissed um, off the film industry, if I may recall correctly. Why? They were all pissed off that it wasn't a studio picture. There was this independent British. Yeah, I think won. it was like the first maybe British movie to win Best Picture yeah. and just to make any kind of significant inroads with the Academy. Um, he, so Olivier, he directed and starred. He cut down the text significantly. It's still two and a half hours, but <laughs> Hamlet's real long. <laughs> so he cut it down, which not everyone agrees with. He cut out Rosencrantz and Guildenstern entirely, you know, things were shaved down that is a choice that's fine um i'm not like the biggest hamlet fan i you know i don't really want to criticize shakespeare but i think it loses some momentum when hamlet goes away and then comes back but i think it is you know seeing this made me realize like it is so crucial to the english canon and the english language because there's so many phrases that people say every day that are from hamlet there are band names there are book titles there are movie titles like you just watch it and you're like oh that's what that's from oh that's what that's from <laughs> like over and over and over so hamlet is ready player one in reverse <laughs> <laughs> wow that's deep um but yeah so i think it is good for everyone to see at least one version or production i think this one is really good um it is some of the most incredible black and white cinematography I've ever seen. Like, if you hate Shakespeare, watch it on mute, if that's fine. <laughs> Apparently, Olivier wanted to shoot it in color, but he was in a feud with Technicolor at the time. I don't know how one feuds with Technicolor, but he found a way. And thank God, because it's like, I think that would have been the wrong call. I mean, Hamlet's a very dark and brooding story, and... He shot it like a film noir. The DCP they showed was incredible. You could see the beads of sweat on everyone's foreheads. I don't know how many K that was, but it was a lot. <laughs> sweat K. <laughs> sweat K. But like, they shot it like a film noir, and there are even scenes where they're inside. They're in a castle that ostensibly has lights on, and he just still had it so that it was pitch black except for the characters. It was like really striking. And then there's a lot of things where they're like outside in a fog. It's like incredible. And then, like we were saying earlier with Midsummer Night's Dream, obviously Shakespeare plays are designed for the stage, but there are certain additional layers you can add to them when it's for film. And I think he 
Olivier does take advantage of that. He really kind of elevates the ambiance and the mood through the visuals. Um, one of the great examples of this is the ghost, his father's ghost, which whenever the ghost shows up, you hear like a heartbeat sound and then synchronized with the heartbeat, the shot goes in and out of focus and like zooms. It's like really like incredible for a film from 1948. Also, I have no evidence of this. I really feel like Darth Vader was inspired by this ghost. This ghost let me lay out my case. He's wearing a black cape. He's wearing a helmet. He sounds like Darth Vader. <laughs> like he, I don't know what you would call whatever is going on with Darth Vader's voice, but this ghost says the same thing. So, you know, draw your own conclusions. Um, they had an introduction from Alan Cumming, who played Hamlet on stage in the 90s. And he was saying that a lot of actors who play Hamlet have like emotional breakdowns right after because um, part of it is it's a very hard role it's a very long play but it's also the character you know people project a lot of different things onto it but Cummings interpretation was he's having a nervous breakdown and if you watch it it's like his actions scene to scene are kind of inconsistent a lot of the times and if you view it through the lens of I mean they refer to it as madness but if you kind of think of it that way it makes a lot more sense because like in one scene he'll be really glib and kind of like trolling everyone and the next one he'll be really sorrowful and it's like really hard to play and apparently in that production Cumming was playing Hamlet opposite his wife who he was on the outs with playing Ophelia so you can understand how that <laughs> might wear you down um but yeah, I don't know that it would convert people who aren't at least a little into Hamlet, but I think it is a really interesting um, production. It's also, you know, people hear the name Laurence Olivier, they think stiff and British and theatrical, and his performance is very subdued. Like, he rarely raises his voice. He really understands the camera. And Cumming was saying that this film kind of sits on the precipice of two styles of acting, kind of the older, more classical style and then the newer style that was coming in. And I was surprised to see Olivier kind of in the latter camp. Mm -hmm. I think he did have, I mean, by then he had been acting for film for a little while, and I think he did have an understanding of that. But there are other actors who are kind of maybe playing to the cheap seats a little more. Mm -hmm. But I think it's good. I think, you know, so many people in the standby line were complaining about seeing it because they got shut out of theater four. So then the staff members were like, well, you can go see Hamlet. And they're all like, Ugh, it's like eating your vegetables. And they were like, so pissed about it. I'm like, first of all, don't harsh the vibe for people who are like jazzed about this. But I mean, also, you don't have to go to a movie. Just go home if you're going to have like such a crappy attitude. Anyway. I, I could spend two hours, two and a half hours at Sweet. The there you go. Candy store at Hollywood. And there you go. Go to the candy store. But I think it is more dynamic than it would be, it would seem on paper. So shout out to Hamlet. It's on Filmstruck. Check it out. All, All right. right. We both finished uh, with the 1937 Star is Born on Nitrate film uh another william wellman yeah another william wellman so between us we saw all three because i saw the oxbow incident there you go and you saw the other two yeah or wellman complete yes <laughs> we've seen every one of his movies yep is it it seems like there's something like that because last year there were three movies that lee grant was in right but that was on purpose right because she was she, get, getting she a was tribute around yeah. yeah so you don't do you think this was an accident that there are three william wellman movies i mean i, I, I direct know. a lot of movies yeah. i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um 
I don't know. It was fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we're still in the camp of preferring the, um, 50s, the 50s version, which I know is not the cool take. I know David has I'm, the cool take. I have the cool take. The <laughs> cool take is to is like the 30s one the best. I think it's just the th- the 30s one. I enjoyed it. Um, it's definitely funnier than the other yeah. ones. It's very lively, I would say. Um, it stars Frederick March and Janet Gaynor, who looks identical to when she was in Sunrise 10 years earlier. Um And yeah, like the print was really beautiful. And I think, you know, it's still the general story still speaks to a lot of truths about Hollywood. Apparently it was based on a real couple, like right down to the ending. Yeah. Which is like kind of adds another level. Um, But yeah, I don't know. Did you have not too many more? I feel like people kind of know the arc of stars born spouting guy whose career is on the downwards trend while his wife is uh, both actors. Right, on yeah. the upward. Uh, Frederick March, I think, plays the role quite well. Yeah. Um, there's just not as much for either of them to do as there is in the 50s one. So it's, it's tough for me to get enthused about the film's virtues, which I feel are mirrored in the 50s one, but it doesn't have the same, them to the same extent as the 50s one. There's nothing like the scene that Judy Garland has where she's having a complete emotional breakdown about the disintegration of her marriage and within the same shot walks on and does a huge musical joyous musical number. Yeah. And that scene alone is so incredible and so heartbreaking. And there's nothing in this version that quite has the same extent, partially because we never really see Janet Gaynor uh, act as her character. We don't see whatever the talent is that everyone's freaking out about. Um, and she's just not given the same kind of emotional beats to play. She's mostly a fairly passive character in the film. Um, and doesn't have the same kind of active conflict throughout it. But I think they're also, Janet Gaynor and Judy Garland, um, despite having the same initials, I just realized, are very, they're very different performers. So I think the different versions, you know, I don't think Janet Gaynor was doing a Judy Garland type thing because that wasn't really her thing. So I think that's fine. I just think the ultimate result maybe wasn't as dynamic, but I don't, I don't think it's because she wasn't doing that exact thing. That's not what I meant. I meant she isn't in the just conception of the story. She's not given the opportunity to illustrate her character's talent or to illustrate her character's dilemma. Well, to that, it's like in the 50s one, she's a musical star, so you can see her sing. I feel like it's really hard to depict people acting mm-hmm. in a movie seriously. I think it was rarer at the time, perhaps, but I don't think it's hard. And I think Mahal and Drive is a perfect example of that. Uh, where you have Naomi Watts' audition scene where you see... Sure, it's not hard to just be David Lynch and Naomi Watts. <laughs> <laughs> you set up a scene in which someone has to act well. It's not hard to create that environment. Okay. That's what I mean. <laughs> but also the idea of acting at that time might have been different. It might have been just go up there and be the person you are all the time just really well. So I think maybe the idea is that you see the character she is and they keep saying throughout the movie, they're like, oh, she's this fresh good girl type. So I think the idea is Mm -hmm. that like she is being that character. Like I understand what you're saying. I just think maybe the idea of acting and the idea of the type of character she was playing wouldn't really allow for that in any way. I think of another example though. I saw most of show people at the TCM film festival. I didn't want to bring it up because I didn't finish it because the farm alarm went off and I had to get to the big Lebowski. Um, But that's also a film about a girl coming to Hollywood and uh, her career taking off. Uh, and we get to see her perform for the movies and we see very clearly why she's so compelling for the people behind the camera and for audiences. But isn't it because she's like getting pies thrown at her a lot? That's how it starts, <laughs> but that's not like her career really takes off that's because true. she becomes a 
semi-serious actress. True. Yeah. She catches one of the pies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you have additional thoughts on Star is Born as someone with the cool take? (laughs) No, well, I have additional thoughts on the other Star is Born that we haven't mentioned, uh, the 1970s one. Yeah, we haven't seen it. uh, It's completely lifeless. Um, (laughs) It's such a boring movie, unfortunately. But I I thought of it because you were talking about how Judy Garland's more of a musical their characters more musical. Right. In this one, they're not actors at all. They're right. They're it's Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand playing people who do what they do, which <laughs> is also the case <laughs> in the upcoming Lady yeah. Gaga Bradley Cooper remake. They're just musicians, right? Or um, are they both musicians in that one? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. Sure. Uh, are you guys looking forward to that one? I'm interested. Yeah. Sure. Why not? Uh, I like Lady Gaga. I'm not sure about Bradley Cooper directing, but yeah, uh, you know, we'll see how there. that goes. Um, Anyway, okay, so did you guys go to the closing night party? No, I always skip it. Yeah, I've never been uh, either. Standby life doesn't allow for such <laughs> decadence. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, and usually, I know, like, I, well, I think people, obviously a lot of people who said are tra- traveling, so they're yeah. not going to, like, getting up at 6.30 and right. going to go to work <laughs> right. like I am. And, you know, but I, usually it's like, because my wife doesn't come, so usually by the end of the weekend it's like, I just need to, like, see my wife for a few hours, have yeah. dinner, and get some sleep. Uh, so I didn't go to the closing night party. I did want to go around and say favorite and least favorite. I think I was kind of clear about Black Stallion being my favorite. Although I didn't make the point that I, had, I think I made to you, uh, Scott, in, I almost said Tyler, uh, in line um, about seeing color cinematography on film yeah. from an era before the 21st century. Everything is color timed and color graded to within a light an inch of, an inch of its life now uh I, I don't know if I, that makes me sound like an old fogey but i think i like i that classic old fogey line about <laughs> color timing <laughs> but I, I i know but it's just uh, when i think about like uh you know even stuff that caleb deschanel has done more more recently it's just like there's a part of me that's like is that cinematography i guess it is if they're right. overseeing the color timing but um, they aren't always overseeing the color timing that's true. Um, but this is why it's important to see stuff on film, David. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, you're right. Because <laughs> even uh, when it gets transferred, it gets the colors get yeah, messed with. Color. I mean, very much, I think, more so now than they used to be. It, yeah, and in some cases, hopefully, the the director and or DP are there to approve the the transfer. And not the, always. No, not always. <laughs> um, anyway, so I, I just I forgot to mention that earlier and wanted to bring it up. So favorite for me, Black Stallion, least favorite, Spellbound, sorry. Uh, you guys, favorite and least favorite? Uh, I had a pretty successful festival. I think my least favorite was probably this thing called Love, which I didn't hate. It's fine. I just, you know. That dog with the bandages, man. <laughs> and so my favorite cute. was definitely Wife vs. Secretary. Um, I think my favorite was either Taking of Pelham 123 or A Hat Full of Rain. Um, again, pretty successful festival. I don't know that there's a least favorite. I, I think, again, my brilliant career left me a little wanting but it's again it's still pretty good i think like you know at a festival like this all the movies have been seen by lots of people so you can make very educated decisions right so i oh, find I yeah. that i usually do pretty well because of that yeah i tend to orient my scheduling around like rare stuff if they have it like i, I saw a couple of films that aren't widely available um which worked out pretty well but that hasn't always worked out. True. So even, yeah. But there's also just the sense of selection of like, these are the films that somebody made the effort to dig out of a vault. Right. You know, versus like, this is just something a guy made, now it's at Sundance. <laughs> like, so there's a certain That's amount of... That's how they program of, Sundance. That is yeah. exactly how they program Sundance. Guy made another movie. You gotta find a slot. 
All right. Um, thanks. This was fun. Yeah. yeah. Had a blast. Uh, and we'll uh, do it again next year, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so real quick, you, of course, you can you can find... Look, it's been a very busy time, so uh, hopefully by the time you're hearing this, you can find some of my written TCM coverage at battleshipretention.com. <laughs> it's not there yet. Um, uh, you can... And then you can find all, all sorts of stuff there. Email me at david at battleshipretension.com um, and follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Uh, you guys on the internet, are you? Well... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Great Yoda, Yoda question, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow, uh, at BattleshipRetention.com, where I've been writing a lot about Ingmar Bergman, of course, yeah. uh, including a breakdown of the now underway, by the time this episode goes up, retrospective in L.A., but which you can follow along at home, because most of the films are on Filmstruck or in other formats, uh, and I'll be doing more of that. And uh, my TCM Fest coverage is at CriterionCast.com. He is also a contributor to yes, the American <laughs> Cinematheque blog, and I know that because I am the editor of it. So that is americancinematheque.blogspot.com. Um, you know, they write about their programming, but they also have interviews, and I make sure it's all grammatically correct. So <laughs> someone's got to do it. Thanks again, guys. Yeah, yeah thanks thank for having us. Thanks to TCM, and for thanks at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 